Hello and welcome to Riot Act, the alternative music podcast. This is a classic album special and you're getting it for free, which is something that we don't always do. My name's Stephen Hill. I'm joined by Renfrey Deadman as ever. Hello, Renfrey. How are you? Hello, Steve. I am really excited. Yeah, me too. I'm very excited. If you're listening to this podcast for beginners, I should say, Thank you very much for tuning in. We appreciate anyone listening at all times. This is the first part of a double classic album series. Now, if you go over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash right act podcast, the second part of this particular podcast will be waiting there for you. And if you sign up for our £5 a month tier, you can listen to us chat about a classic album twice. Every two weeks, we, we, we do this, right? And over there so far... We've got loads. We've got Radiohead and Pink Floyd and Guns N' Roses and Weezer and Sepultura and the Manic Street Preachers and the Beatles and Ben Folds Five and Pixies and Jane's Addiction and Foo Fighters and loads. We've got loads. Blur, we've got loads. We've got loads and loads and loads over there, including the second part of this special, which I'll talk about in a minute. So if you'd like to contribute, if you'd like to hear the second part of this, if you're into this and you want to hear it all, please go over to patreon.com forward slash right podcast and sign up for our £5 tier. We would appreciate that because today we are going to be doing two albums from, I would say, probably one of the best bands ever. Yes. <laughs> like, let's just yes, say it. I would agree. Yes, let's would just agree. say it. One yep. of the best fucking bands ever. In yep. this part, we will be talking about the fifth studio album from the Seattle Grunge Legends Soundgarden. The album is called Super Unknown. It came out on the 8th of March, 1994. Uh, apologies to stop you there, though. Uh, is it not technically the fourth album? Is it? Well, uh, it's the fifth if you're including Screaming Life and Fop, the two EPs that were plonked together i kind of was including that okay i i'm every every everywhere else is the fourth okay fine the fourth all right fine <laughs> sorry the fourth i i actually do i don't know why i do i do include that as an album sorry i do no, i, I mean uh, I, I i understand what you're saying and i'm i'm sort of with you but but everywhere says it's the fourth album and when they talk about it they refer to it as their fourth album okay fine well yes you know what i've just looked on the wikipedia page and you're quite right i've always referred to it as their fifth album a bit I, I, like i 13 songs by fugazi yeah I consider yeah that an album. yeah that's that that, yeah yeah to that. totally but I i'm mean, not gonna i'm not gonna argue with Soundgarden themselves over no which no album no I, this I, is. I know yes. that was very finickety way to start no no but, that is an know. important distinction yeah, um yeah. so then you can ha head over I mean, we are doing the fifth album by the way by Soundgarden yeah, are, so yeah. I was sort of right whatever you think I was sort of right because <laughs> like I say if you go over to our Patreon page we'll be talking about it, this album's follow-up down on the upside from 1996 but yeah <sighs> but um we've we've done i think we're at a chat me and renfrey i'm just gonna i'm gonna open this one up and i hope you don't mind renfrey because i mean this was on my list as a classic album i think if you if you like guitar music at all when you made a list of classic albums uh, there's not many people i think you probably who wouldn't put super unknown on that list unless you're really quite Thick. insane <laughs> very bad at listening to, unless you're very bad at listening to music mm. um so both of us had this as a pick but 
because what we like to do is kind of tag team these doubles and I pick one and you pick one. Mm. Usually that's how it mm. happens. Mm. Um, unless it's, you know, you two, uh, in which case <laughs> I get the full <laughs> shebang. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, I didn't pick, I didn't actually put down on the upside down for mine but i've ended up doing it and that's just how great soundgarden are right pretty much yeah yeah um mm. uh goodness me like soundgarden are just such a ridiculously important band um in so many ways they are kind of uh i think out of the big four of grunge they're like the band's choice Mm -hmm. I would say. Uh, and this is the first album we've covered on classic albums from the big four of grunge, isn't it, Steve? Well, I was going to say, we've sort of teased the idea. Mm. But what's, what's interesting about this is recently, I mean, behind the curtain, this is what you should know. Renfrey and I, I have said, and I'm going to say this now in case people are like, oh, why haven't you done this yet? Why haven't you done that yet? Uh. I am very protective over the big, big, big albums that Same. we can do on classic albums. Same. Because I think you've got to be... You've got, you know, we we could have rushed in when we launched this and just gone, oh, we're going to do Nevermind mm. and Sergeant Peppers mm. and um, Slipknot by Slipknot. Mm. And do you know what I mean? We could have just rushed in and went Raining Bloods and Master yeah. Puppets. We could have yeah. done that. But then a few years down the line, you kind of then go, oh, God, uh, you know, we're doing the first Curb Dog album as well as on the turn, <laughs> um, we're, we're, which... Which we will yeah, be doing. doing shaving uh, so. peaches as well as how to make friends and influence people. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So I'm always very sort of super protective about doing these absolutely mammoth monster superstar records. What but Steve's felt, saying is we don't want to spunk it. Yeah, we don't. We want to keep a steady flow, uh, an even flow, if you like, of... Uh, <laughs> of you know kind of albums that we really love the likes of ben folds five which we've done recently the likes yeah. of typo negative mm. the bands that maybe aren't quite so big but that we really really love and try and find something kind of interesting about them, alongside you know now and again just pinging an absolute doozy at you mm. um so we hadn't, didn't feel like we'd done anything huge 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 for ages so that's kind of why we were like soundgarden soundgarden's mm. the one um we've teased grunge on classic album specials before, haven't we? We have talked about stuff that helped kill it, like Blur. We've helped. Uh, we've talked about stuff that helped it blossom, like Jane's Addiction, Jane's Addiction. Pixies. We've talked about stuff that came in its aftermath, like the Foo Fighters. Um, stuff that happened alongside it, which maybe didn't really have that much to do with it, like the Beastie Boys, Sepultura, Ben Folds Five. But this is the first time that we have actually tackled the grunge explosion from the point of view of, like you say, one of those big four bands. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And um, do you know what? Out of all of those amazing albums and all of those amazing bands that, I mean, all both of us adore all four of the big four of Grunge, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, mm -hmm. Soundgarden. And, and Beyond. And Beyond, actually. Yeah, 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 quite a lot. But um, out, out of all of the incredible albums that those four bands have produced never mind 10 dirt bad motor finger versus an utero black is way to blue yield super unknown is my absolute favorite wow and that is going to be the first of a myriad of hot takes on this particular <laughs> episode so if you don't See, tend don't to go in for to my particularly hot take do you know i think some no. people would though i've actually i was speaking to our um i was no, I won't name it. But I was speaking to some people about it and like saying, oh, Super Unknown is my absolute favourite. Blah, blah, blah. Um, 
And some people were like, what? You're mad. You know, you know, it's got to be a neutral. It's got to be never mind. Blah, blah, blah. But um, no, I mean, for me, Super Unknown is absolutely my favorite out at like, I, and, and you know, Soundgarden aren't, aren't even my favorite band out of those four. That's people who read, listen, listen to this regularly will know. But I, I, I can't, I can't honestly say that Pearl Jam have made one singular statement, which is as diverse and all encompassing and cinematic and just spellbinding as super unknown i think it is a absolutely phenomenal record um it you know as, as i say so it's my it's my favorite grunge album of all time which of course is a relative term considering that grunge of course isn't a genre as we've discussed before mm. um or rather yeah. <clears throat> maybe we should reassess that whole grunge is not a genre thing a little bit um maybe it would be more accurate to say that there was I think there was a perceptible musical lineage between bands like Soundgarden and Tad and Mudhoney and Screaming Trees and Melvins when those bands started. But for me, the very best bands that got tagged and eventually burdened with the grunge tag were the ones who went the furthest away from it. Mm -hmm. And Soundgarden moved further away from their origins than most of their peers. The only band I can really say who went as far as Soundgarden, debatably further, but, you know, as far would probably be Pearl Jam, which is yeah. funny, funny that, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> but them being my favourite band in the world. But, and I'd like to make it clear that this isn't me going, oh, the SST stuff and the early sub-pop stuff that was going on between the mid to late uh, mid to late 80s wasn't any good or anything like that i'm not saying that i'm just saying that this is more about progression about where stand about where bands started and then where they ended up uh, and the steps that they took to, to get there we always talk about how um generally the the bands that we favor the most are the ones who who make these big leaps and bounds and progressions and so on and so forth and Soundgarden are a brilliant example of that I think and Super Unknown really is the point where they well <laughs> they delved deep into the Super Unknown didn't they like they really 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 went for it on yeah. this record um I was having a little think about this just before we get smack bang into the record itself um and just whilst we're on this big four tip I think Soundgarden are the most widely respected of the big four of grunge, in my opinion. Now, here's my working. Um, Pearl Jam, lots of people dismissed from the off, uh, wrongly in my opinion, of course, but a lot of people dismissed them from the off because um, Pearl Jam were kind of a, an, an overnight success, really. They formed in 1990, 10 came out in 1991, boom, big massive straight away and so a lot of people were like oh they haven't paid their dues blah 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 i would argue that they sort of did with green river and mother love bone blah 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 but that's another conversation for another time but i think i think as a result of that there's a lot of people who are like oh boo pearl jam rubbish um grunge obviously infiltrated the mainstream at the beginning of the 90s and i think the, from the mainstream's perspective alice in chains would be considered too metal to get respect from all corners of the music press and people would look yeah. down on and sneer on that a little bit. Stuart like, McConey and people like that in mm. the NME, the ones who don't who pretend that they like rough, like hard 
heavy music but then when they actually hear something which isn't yeah you know song two they exactly exactly yeah. so so you know we love metal in the show contrary to popular belief uh but believe me as someone who worked for a mainstream publication working my ass off to try and get metal on it for oh, seven years we have a long way to go before metal is genuinely accepted in the mainstream without some twat sneering and throwing metal horns uh, in, ironically in the corner you know we have a long mm. way to go uh, now i've left nirvana till last because it's the one i assume people will think i'd struggle with the most in this particular rhetoric of the most respected um but remember we are talking about respect here not you know like popularity or anything like that it's like the most respected and when bands become as massive and as omnipresent as nirvana you're always going to get people who are going oh they're overrated or oh but they only i only like the one with the baby on the cover and the rest is just noise or whatever you're always going to get those people and those people may well be wrong but unfortunately respect doesn't take into account the lack of brain cells of those who are dishing out the r-e-s-p-e-c-t find out what it means to me you know it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't consider that so i think from that perspective soundgarden don't really soundgarden kind of get left alone it's like people either know them and adore them or they don't really know them or they only know black hole sun I feel. And it's cool to name check Soundgarden. They're well known enough to be a name that people recognise, even if the overwhelming majority of those people wouldn't be able to name any of their songs, bar probably Black Hole Sun. Uh, millions of people only know that song. And yet you don't you don't really hear people mistake Soundgarden as a one hit wonder or anything like that. There's That's because, and I think that's because there's an air of respect around the band and people know that if Black Hole Sun is the only song they're familiar, it's due to their own lack of knowledge rather than the band only having one hit, you know. Um, Kerrang writer and fellow Pearl Jam enthusiast and all-round wonderful person George Garner put it succinctly and quite perfectly when he said, Soundgarden were the first of the big grunge acts to sprout and yet the last to bloom. Um, yeah, true. and then and then <clears throat> on top of that, if you're still not convinced, I see you're wavering a little bit, Steve. But if you're still not convinced, we've got Chris Cornell, haven't we? So I remember when Audio Slave was announced, and I remember a bunch of my mates, uh, a bunch of the more stupid mates, um, who were unaware of the history of Soundgarden, all that sort of thing, were looking at this man from a s supposed bygone era. Um, teaming up with ex-members of the still very cool, still very hip Rage Against yep. the Machine, to use the kid lingo. Um, and those kids and those dissenting voices went away really quickly once people heard Cochise. Like, they just disappeared overnight. And any notion that this guy was old hat or obsolete were just obliterated overnight. Uh, this is a guy who managed to infiltrate the mainstream enough to record a theme for a Bond film without people losing respect for him. Which this version of Billie Jean was um, mm. adopted by X Factor in the United States yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and Simon like, Cowell name checking that version of the song. Yeah, was mental. Yeah, you know, and and. Mm. I know people who don't like that version of Billie Jean. I know people who don't particularly... I'm not a massive fan of that Bond theme. If, But, you know, I don't think anyone ever lost respect for Chris Cornell for doing those things at all. Definitely even not. even when he did Scream, the record he made with the uh, with uh, R&B producer Timberland, 
and a future entry in our Broken Records series, actually. Even yeah. that didn't really dent Cornell or by proxy Soundgarden's credibility at all. I think people were just like, well, fair play, he's trying something new. I don't like it, but fair. And I, like, I don't think anyone turned around and went, ah, oh, Chris Cornell, he's passed it or anything like that. Like the, 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 the respect that is there for this band is just absolutely massive. Your th- I've, just, I've just wanged on for a long time. Your thoughts on that? I'm very glad you said this, Renfrey, because I'm going to contradict pretty much every single thing that you've said so far in part two when I talk about a very specific period in time. But I agree with you that today, ah, okay. and in the aftermath of Soundgarden splitting up, um, certainly they... Uh, Alice and Chains are... I mean, to go through them one by one, yes, there is cynicism around Pearl Jam because of how it happened. I, th- yeah. I think that's definitely true. Um the people who don't want to like grunge but do pretend to like nirvana use alice in chains as the main punching bag from what i've noticed the enemy the melody makers the the kind of the more indie crowd yeah. hate alice in chains um it's pathetic metal fans and kind of punk fans seem to have a problem a bit with nirvana some of them Mm. I think as well, as well as the people who are like, oh, they're overrated because they don't know about them or they just want to, you know, they're doing that thing that young people do with the Beatles and saying that Imya are better than the Beatles or whatever and fucking bollocks <laughs> that they come up with. Like they just want to go, oh, well, I've heard that this is popular, so I won't like it. And I'll say that this thing that's happening right now, yeah. which is incredibly inferior to it, is... Um, I mean, in the Muir's case, incredibly inferior to anything. Anything, yeah. Anything you know, and everything, yeah. I agree kind of that. like root canal surgery <laughs> better than a Um uh But Soundgarden, yes, they came back. And I mean, particularly where we are now, I don't think anyone would dare. I don't think anyone would dare to kind of come at Soundgarden. No, I I mean, I just don't think they would. I just think, I don't think I've ever heard anyone go, oh, I hate Soundgarden. And I've I've heard, I hate Nirvana. Mm. I hate, I hate Pearl Jam. I hate um, Alice in Chains. I don't think I've ever heard anyone go, oh, I fucking hate Soundgarden. They're fucking Mm. rubbish, you know? I've heard people go, oh, that like, when they did download and stuff, uh, subheadlining, like maybe it wasn't the right, move to put them on there and stuff like that like a little bit lackluster live sometimes and stuff like that but it's always said with a kind of uh caveat of soundgarden are an amazing band and massive respect to them blah 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 but you know this set didn't quite do it for me or whatever like i've never i never just hear someone just outright go i fucking hate soundgarden they're fucking terrible you know but i do with the other three bands it's true it's absolutely true. Um, yes, I agree. Uh, it's a good point. Well made, Renfrey. It Thank will you. be shattered into a million pieces in part two. Yeah. Um, because it's not always been this way, trust me. But no, no, no. I, I, yeah, I, I think that's fair enough. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I didn't say it's always been this way. I am talking yeah. from the perspective of someone mm-hmm. in 2021 recording this. But yes, um, yes, I'm sure when we get to 1996, that won't be the case at all. Um, but yeah, I think as we speak in the present, I think... You know, that's a fair enough point, I would say. Mm. Um, so prior to Super Unknown, uh, the tour for Bad Motorfinger, their previous record, and a record that, you know, we will do on classic albums one day, don't worry. I think so. Um, the, that tour put Soundgarden in front of stadium crowds on several occasions. Um, there was Lollapalooza 1992, 
where they played a late afternoon slot every day sandwiched between Ice Cube and the Jesus and Mary chain. That's an interesting... Isn't uh, it? Three, three, yeah, yeah. So it went to the Jesus Mary chain, then Soundgarden, then Ice Cube, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Would watch. Yeah, 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 totally. I'd see that. That'd be awesome. Um, Red Hot Chili Peppers were headlining. Now, now, I know you like have said not very nice things about Chili Peppers at the time, but in 1992. 1992, yeah. yeah that would yeah, have yeah. been fucking great. I mean, I love Blood Sugar Sex Magic. I think it's an incredible album. Um, the, other, the other time they were put in front of big stadium uh, crowds was um, when Soundgarden were asked by personal request to be the main support on Guns N' Roses' mammoth Use Your Illusion tour. Um, and the quartet's reaction to the stint earned them the name, the nickname Frown Garden. Uh, yeah. Speaking to Raw magazine, Chris Cornell said, I think that might have been a name we deserved on that tour. It wasn't a whole lot of fun going out in front of 40,000 people for 35 minutes every day. Most of them hadn't heard our songs and didn't care about them. It was a bizarre thing. I'd rather not do the sports stadium kind of thing. It would be nice to go and play in front of 5,000 for the rest of my career because I don't really care about performing in front of 20,000 or 60,000. That kind of music that you have to play isn't something we're either interested in or capable of doing. And that line there about playing for 5,000 rather than 60,000 kind of sums up the art that I personally am most interested in. Um, it's effectively saying... We want a large audience, but only up to the point where our music and what we do remains unaffected and untarnished. And I'm pretty sure that playing to massive crowds just prior to going into Record Super Unknown, many of whom were apathetic towards Soundgarden night after night after night, would have had quite a profound effect on the band. The media circus that was being thrown behind any band that came from Seattle, if, if a piece of bacteria came out of Seattle, like it would be vaulted as the next best thing, you know, um, as if it was some sort of magical place which had properties that created amazing music. It was it was absolutely and, frenzied. And not just Candlebox. And <laughs> you were quite, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, look at what happened to Candlebox, who, you know, fine. Um, and Soundgarden had seen their friends in Nirvana and Pearl Jam. This is the other thing that we have to remember about the Seattle scene. It was really close-knit. Like, all of the bands were really good friends with each other. There was that, there was that feud, supposedly, between Eddie Vedder and um, Kurt Cobain. And there was a bit of that, but that was very much sparked off by the media. And, and they very much made up before Kurt Cobain died, you know. Um, but for the most part, they were they were all, like very very friendly with each other one day we'll go into mad season and temple of the dog and all that stuff and it was like incredibly incestuous you know all mm. that sort of stuff um and and soundgarden had seen their friends in nirvana and pearl jam be catapulted to a level excess of success that neither of them was comfortable with i'm sure the pros and cons of success were weighing very heavily on the band's mind when they headed into the studio to record Super Unknown. And for me, it is the perfect example of a band riding that sweet spot between commercial success and artistic credibility. And let's not also forget that this is the first time 
that Soundgarden had been in the studio recording a full-length album with all this sudden added attention thrown mm. onto them. Um, with all this sudden... <clears throat> I mean, when Soundgarden went in to record Bo Bad Motorfinger, the grunge explosion hadn't really happened. Bad Motorfinger came out the same day as Nevermind did. Soundgarden had last been in the when when they'd last been in the studio, the grunge explosion just hadn't happened for them. This was all new yeah. territory, and that thing that George Garner said about Soundgarden were the first of the big grunge acts to sprout and yet the last to bloom is totally true because you know they were the first to um, get onto a major label, um, but they kind of the timing was sort of perfect for them in a way because. They could see this massive grunge explosion happening and they could see what it was doing to their friends and they could kind of go, okay, let's try and let's try and work out how we deal with this. And the way they dealt with it was super unknown, <laughs> which is fucking amazing. Yeah. You know. And and as well, it should be said by um I mean, I will be quoting less from this book on this particular part, but certainly in the second part. I'll be quoting very much from Mark Yarm's um, Everybody <clears throat> Loves Our Town, A History of Grunge, which is basically the Bible. Yes, yes, you described it as the Bible. Basically the Bible. that You have to read that book. It's absolutely fucking it exceptional. It is fantastic. Yeah. And, I, the, the, you know, and kind of flicking through this particular sort of three-year period uh, in that book, finding those chapters that kind of talked, not just Soundgarden, but I think all of those bands sort of went, well, maybe we should maybe we should sort of fuck off a bit. Mm. Like all the bands kind of originally, they all sort of went, you know, they all kind of tried to get out of Seattle and tried to get away from what it meant to be a, a, a quote unquote grunge band or a Seattle band because I think yep. they were just pissed off with how, do you know what I mean? How, you know, it's not the scene particularly, but it's the, the leeches that sort of came afterwards. Yeah, All of them talk about like, there's a bit that I, I didn't actually write the quote down, but I was like, oh, that's funny. From Susan Silver, who was um, Soundgarden's manager. manager. And, and Chris Cornell's wife. Yes, that's right. And she was saying Soundgarden, you know, initially weren't that keen on going out with Guns N' Roses, but thought it would be preferable hanging around with Guns N' Roses to being in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> wow, <I didn't> know <laughs> Which, that. when you know anything about Guns N' Roses, you're just like... At, at that yeah. time, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, particularly at that time, you're like, mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, absolutely crazy, crazy time for music. I suppose it's a really difficult thing to get your head around in 2021 because we don't, we don't have this obsession with sort of one scene, one genre. The music press doesn't really tend to do that anymore. It's far more fractured. Um, and I say fractured. I mean, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think it's actually, I do think it's a good thing overall that it's, it's a lot more spread out, I suppose. It's probably a better word than fractured. But um, yeah, it, but but I mean, it really was like, I mean, it's it's been talked about a lot, but all that kind of thing of like, you know, um, uh, shops, like fashion shops, start, like Gap or something, starting to sell flannel shirts for like £200 or $200 a pop or whatever, you know. The Mark Jacobs grunge collection. Yeah, yes, Very that was good. actually a thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, just, just, it is, it, it's absolutely mad. I mean, I don't know, can you imagine Mark Jacobs doing a line of employed to serve boiler suits or something? <laughs> oh, I'd love to see it. 
I'd love to see it too. Oh, it's just, I couldn't even get it out without laughing. That's just a ridiculous thought. It's not quite the same thing because that's one band, but you know, I don't know. Uh, yeah, Mark Jacobs doing UK hardcore. UK hardcore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So palm, mad. palm reader fragrance. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. I wouldn't want the <laughs> smell of Gillen near me. But anyway. <clears throat> Uh, so Super Unknown was recorded between July and September 1993 at Bad Animals Studios. Now, there's a pretty interesting history to this studio. Um, in 1991, Nancy and Anne Wilson of the band Heart entered into a partnership with Steve Lawson, who was a local DJ and owner of the studio space where Hart had recorded a bunch of their albums in the 80s, including Baby Lestrange and Private Audition. Great album. Uh, Baby Lestrange, or I, I've not heard either. I, I, you know what? Um, I used to not. I didn't really. I didn't really. I had no strong. You're about to go full party. Let me shock you. I like Heart. <laughs> I had. I had no strong opinion on on Heart for ages and ages and ages. And then I was drank. Uh, I was drunk with uh, Becky Laverty, um, the uh, uh, one of the. Um, uh, PRs, P- P- PR and, and Roadburn Festival organisers, people. And she was going on about her love of heart. And I listened to one of their albums the next day. I can't remember which one it was. It might have even been Bebe Lestrange. And heart, heart, heart are fucking wicked. They're really good. Oh, wow. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, you heard it here first. <laughs> well, you might not have heard it here first, actually. <laughs> they're really good. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so, yeah, Nancy and Anne Wilson um, went to partnership with Steve Lawson. They upgraded the facility to a state-of-the-art kind of facility and renamed it Bad Animals Studio in honour of their 1987 album, Bad Animals. Um, Anne and Nancy sold the studio back to Lawson in 1997, where it was renamed Studio X. But whilst the the name of the studio might have changed a couple of times, it's been the space where a whole bunch of albums that you and I get very excited about have been recorded. So, of course, there's Super Unknown uh, and Soundgarden also recorded the follow up down on the upside there, which we'll be Mm -hmm. talking about in part two. Uh, They returned there to record their comeback album, King Animal, in 2012. I know you're not as excited about that, but, you know, I thought I'd put it in there. Audio Slave recorded their self-titled debut there when the studio had been rechristened Studio X. Pearl Jam recorded Vitology, Yield, Lightning Bolt, their self-titled 2006 album, and Riot Act, the album this podcast is named after there. Uh, Neil Young recorded Mirable there with Pearl Jam as his backing band, of course. Deftones recorded Adrenaline and their self-titled 2003 album there. R.E.M. recorded New Adventures in Hi-Fi there. Bit of an underrated R.E.M. gem, in my opinion. Mad Season, the short-lived Seattle supergroup consisting of members of Pearl Jam, Screaming Trees and Alice in Chains recorded their one and only album above there. Speaking of Alice in Chains, guitarist Jerry Cantrell recorded his debut solo album, Boggy Depp. Depot there, which is a great record. Good record, that. And Alison Chains themselves recorded their self-titled album and their last album, Rainier Fog, which was the last album to be recorded at the studio before multinational construction company Skanska purchased the property for $21.6 million. Any idea what they plan to build there, Steve? Oh, God, a fucking Starbucks or something, probably. (laughs) Um, According to an article in the Seattle Times mourning the loss of the historical site, the development firm plans to build a 346-unit multifamily tower with ground floor retail. I hope someone shoves a 
fucking samurai sword up their ass. <laughs> Very specific. What an image. Um, the studio... I just fucking hate those people. Oh, Fuck it's, off. It's, it's, it just, it just, it saddens me so much. I, th- this is quite a classic thing in Seattle, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the studio itself. And London. It's well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I over the hell, over and over London. again in London. Yeah, all over the Western world, I suppose. Um, the studio itself has been re- relocated to an old church in Seattle's Capitol Hill district. But as you can imagine, it's not really the same, is it? And like, I've looked no. at the credits that they've done since since it's been relocated in 2018. And so far, they haven't done anything that exciting, I don't think. Um, the individual band members would work on material on their own and then bring in demos to which the other members of the band would contribute. So like so many of the very best bands, in my opinion, every member of Soundgarden contributed to the songwriting process. A few bands who do that, uh, the Beatles, Pearl Jam, Pink Floyd, Queen, Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, Fugazi, Fleetwood Mac, Arcade Fire. And I think there are other bands that you could name, but I've picked out those bands as examples because I think they all have really diverse back catalogues as a result of having multiple songwriters and Soundgarden are no different and super unknown as the most diverse record from a very diverse band. Mm. We'll get into who, what wrote, uh, we'll get into who wrote what when we run through the songs later, but every member of the band has a songwriting credit on the record and they all contributed lyrics bar Kim Thiel. Uh, although he did write lyrics for one of the songs on down the upside, which we'll get into in part two. He did. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so from an article in Alternative Press from March 1994 um, about the way that they were recording together and the way that they were collaborating, it's the first one where we've not been self-conscious about what we were doing. This is Chris Cornell speaking, by the way. In the past, we'd only record songs if everybody in the group liked them. This time we've allowed each other more freedom. The sitar fired half one of two Ben Shepherd songs on the album seems a case in point with buried vocals howling from atop a minaret. Half could not be further from the Soundgarden brief if it tried. Cornell agrees, although he chooses his words very seriously, well aware that he's wandering dangerously close to a semantic minefield. There was a sense that we were playing what the audience wanted to hear rather than what we wanted to do. In the past, songs which didn't fit the Soundgarden mould were simply taken elsewhere. Cornell used almost an album's worth of oddities for The Temple of the Dog. Shepard sent his excess out to play with Hater. Cameron, drummer on both these projects, recently completed writing recording the soundtrack to a skateboarding movie. Now, anything goes. Aside from Shepard's contributions, Cameron has made his debut as a Soundgarden lyricist on The Bitter Fresh Tendrils. And with Thyle pulling out the kind of performances which even he seems surprised to hear it seems almost redundant to ask if he's intending if he's intending a solo project of his own what would be the point it would sound like soundgarden with a different vocalist super which nobody wants well (laughs) no not really (laughs) super unknown then is soundgarden once again feeling whole more willing to be weird and in many ways reviving the old led zepp comparisons they ducked out or out of almost a decade back. Oozing unheard emotion, there's a sense of sonic dynamism to the record, which is quite at odds with the band's sludgy reputation. It's also at odds, if Cornell is correct, with most people's expectations. But Soundgarden don't care. And that's exactly how it should be, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. That's like, I read that and I'm like, yes, yes, be brave, be brave, go for it. Like, it might be a colossal... It might be a colossal clusterfuck. It might not work, but 
I just admire that bravery so much. And to do that when the whole world has their eyes on you and what you're going to do next as well. Or, you know, a, a lot of people were like, any, as I said, anything that came out of Seattle, people just clam, clambered over. And, and, and this is the, the, this is the period that Soundgarden had the most attention on them, attention on them ever, probably. And, and, and they were willing to be that brave and they were willing to, to do that at this time. It's quite extraordinary. And I, I think most bands would shirk that responsibility. I think most bands would just be afraid Mm. particularly coming from sst and punk rock as well exactly yeah like yeah you most people would go i mean soundgarden basically made the album to make them make sense in places where they almost didn't really want to be Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's yeah i agree i mean let's let's not forget as well sst records is the um label founded by greg ginn from black flag black flag so you know so that's that's you know where where they were coming from they they released um ultra mega okay on sst didn't they yeah yeah and then they moved yeah and then they moved to a&m for yeah mm-hmm. yeah um so yeah uh oh also garnered from that article um i just wanted to throw in the bin throw this in uh gene simmons was apparently very keen for soundgarden to appear on his tribute to me kiss collection they refused says shepherd because his fans used to beat me up on the way home from school i was into led zeppelin and things which they all called called older brother music so they beat me up even more reasons like soundgarden they said no to gene simmons uh, <laughs> something i did once as well but that's another story um yeah. Uh, no, turn, turn there's no polar there's no polaroid of remfrey in gene simmons <laughs> pocket that's for sure um i must have told i'm sure i've told the story haven't i i don't think you have um i was asked if i wanted to interview gene simmons that i think they were releasing some insane box set which cost about seven thousand yeah. dollars or something yeah, like that I remember this. um and um uh i sent an email back to the pr saying um if me and Jim and Gene Simmons walked into the same room, only one of us would walk out. <laughs> and then the PR said that could make for quite an interesting uh, interview. So I was like, hmm, if you're giving me permission to punch Gene Simmons, then I'll do it. And he, he was like, ah, maybe not. Uh, fair play. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I say when I say that, I didn't mean it seriously. <laughs> I don't really yeah. want to punch anyone. But uh, I was just making. But if my- you were, if you had to. Oh, if I had to, um, yeah, Gene Simmons, yeah, Gene Simmons, yeah, yeah that's enough. fine. Um, Raw, uh, Raw magazine were very prophetic in their article, sarcastically titled "Let's Make a Grunge Album" uh, from December 1993, four months before the album actually came out. When they said the new album, currently entitled Super Unknown and due for a March release, is free flowing, broader reaching and more immediate than any of its predecessors. The type of thing you could imagine being hammered out rapidly, yet lasting for decades. Mm, Very prophetic. Mm -hmm. What's funny is that we actually spent more time recording this record, but maybe not on the same things, offers Kim Thal. We probably spent about the same time writing and arranging. The extra time was spent getting sounds. We have different guitar sounds or drum sounds or bass sounds or vocal sounds all across the board. It was kind of like being a fish out of water, feeling our way around and trying to figure out what works best and what doesn't, while at the same time dealing with a bunch of sounds we'd never used before. 
Later in that article, Thar is asked about the differences between Super Unknown and Bad Motor Finger. And he says, there's actually less guitars per song. Instead of four guitar tracks, there tends to be two with some colour parts in there. In some songs, there's only one. And in a couple of parts, there might not be any. So that's kind of different for us. The less you put into it, the more you're able to discern individual things. I think um, there's gonna, there is a large contingent of people who prefer Bad Motor Finger too super unknown and that's totally mm. fine like bad motor finger is a phenomenal record um to me and i i don't know how you're going to react to this because i know i know i know that uh, the benz is your favorite album but it's almost like the benz to okay computer for me in terms of right. like the leap and like i kind of think the benz is a phenomenal phenomenal Britpop record and OK Computer is a phenomenal Radiohead record. And I sort of feel like Bad Motor Finger is a phenomenal, what I will begrudgingly call grunge record. And Super Unknown is a phenomenal Soundgarden record. Do you see what I mean, at least? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you here. I think The Benz is a better record than Bad Motor Finger, just in general. So, Oh, um, fine. I mean, I'm, I'm not making that comparison. But... Yeah, no, 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 no. So I am a bit like, I don't know, because I think... I think uh, yeah, I think Bad Motor Finger is fucking great, and the leap is obviously massive. But yeah, maybe the leap. Eh, it's, the, it's, it's pretty it's, massive. It's the leap that I'm trying to trying yeah. to highlight here, really. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like, like I guess I'm trying to say, okay, computer. It's difficult to fit it into a genre, just like Super mm. Unknown is difficult to fit into genre into a genre. Mm. The Benz is easier to fit into a genre as is bad motor finger and you know in my opinion that makes i mean that is one of the arguments that i would use when i go on about art objectively being better than and you can disagree all you like but you know that's my opinion and um so there uh <laughs> so there that's the best rhetoric i've ever used um so there. <laughs> but that's my feelings on it you know and i think there's like Copying Super Unknown is far more difficult than copying Bad Motor Finger because there's an intrinsic mm. there's an intrinsic thing about it which makes it only able to be made by those four people. Whereas Bad Motor Finger is it, far more copyable, I suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Uh, after two albums with producer Terry Date, the band decided to seek another collaborator, as guitarist Kim Thar said. We just thought we'd go for a change. Eventually, they settled on producer Michael Beanhorn, who didn't have his own trademark sound, which he was trying to tack on to Soundgarden, and has ideas the band approved. Billboard said of Beanhorn that he purposefully evades any recurrent sonic signature. Um, the band and Billboard are absolutely correct. Select bands that Michael Beanhorn's worked with include Red Hot Chili Peppers, Violent Femmes, Corn, Hole, Black Label Society, Mew, Marilyn Manson, The Bronx, Soul Asylum, Ozzy Osbourne, Aerosmith, and The Cult. Now and Herbie Hancock and Herbie Her Hancock, Herbie yes. fucking Hancock. Yes, Let's not forget true. Herbie yeah, yeah. Hancock. Now you can make the odd connection here and there between those bands. But that is still a very varied and rich tapestry of artists to be working with, isn't it? It feels like this is the perfect marriage of producer and album. 
in a way. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, Michael Beanhorn is an interesting character as well. Oh, he really is. He's a fascinating, fascinating mm. guy. I'd love to interview him. Like he's so, he's so, he really knows his music. He really knows his onions. And I think the way that he listens to music and then goes, right, we need to throw a bit of this into it. And you're, you're kind of like, where on earth did you get that from? I'll try and I'll try and I'll, I'm going to read something which which will give you an example of that a little bit later. But it's yeah. uh, he's yeah, he's an extraordinary producer. Like, like look and what it, he did with Corn. Well, I was about to say I, I recently interviewed um, Head from Corn. And he was talking about the un, the 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 Untouchables album mm. that they did mm. with which cost so much money. Four and they million hired, dollars, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the most money that any album had costed at that point, I think. Mm. And Michael Beanhorn would like stay in a, had his own mansion that him and Jonathan Davis would stay in together and like apparently they would read poetry to each other and stuff. Like he's a real eccentric dude. Like Yeah. You know, they, they had three mansions that they hired all next to each other to record that album. <laughs> corn and <laughs> apparently fieldy and monkey stayed in one which is like a party house yeah, yeah. And jonathan stayed in uh another with michael beanhorn and then there was a place where they recorded which is where um david and head stayed just sort of jamming through everything most of the time right he said it was really weird but beanhorn they'd walk in and it would be like some kind of that, like candles lit and they'd all be in smoking jackets and they'd have like classical music on Jonathan Davis and Michael Beanhorn and they'd be like flicking through Nietzsche and stuff. <laughs> like, he said it was really fucking weird. So yeah. anyway, I spoke to Jonathan Davis a few years ago and did sort of a career retrospective with Corn and uh, he had nothing but amazing things to say about Michael Beanhorn. Like when I went to Untouchables, he was like, "What was the Untouchables experience like for you?" And he was like, "Michael Beanhorn, Michael Beanhorn, Michael Beanhorn," you know. Um, incredible producer who, who I don't think is actually talked about all that much because he doesn't have a signature sound. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, yeah. it's exactly the thing that makes him so brilliant that means that people don't really talk about him all that much. Um, but yeah, absolutely amazing. And I think, I think them working with Michael Beanhorn meant that Super Unknown is painted with a really unrestricted palette. You know, you've got keyboards, alternative tunings, some absolutely. I've got the tab for both Super Unknown and down on the upside and some of the tunings are just like what um absolutely crazy tunings viola cello spoons clavinet mellotron these are all elements that make up the album's sound and i i suspect a lot of it is to do with beanhorn going you need a clavinet on that song you need this on that song and he's just one of those guys who can do that um kim thal was speaking on a spotify commentary for the 20th, 20th anniversary issue and he called it a perfect headphones album and he's absolutely correct and i think the reason for that is because of michael beanhorn basically i i, I suspect i speculate mm. in an interview for modern drummer taken from june 1994 matt cameron said we went into the studio with the idea of approaching each song on its own terms we'd record one entire song everything on it and then go to the next song that gave us a much better focus before we'd do a batch of songs on drums and a batch of songs on bass, and it all started to sound the same. We feel the songs on the new record have a lot more variety and substance to them. They're much more interesting to listen to, but hopefully there's a thread that sort of connects them all. Um, I completely agree. It does feel like each song is its own sort of world on this record. And mm. yet there is a sort of connective tissue that runs through them. So here's an interesting question, Steve. And I think it's something 
it's not something that I've sort of answered in my notes, but I'm hoping that between us we'll be able to come to some sort of answer. We've talked about the lack of cohesion in some albums that go for a very diverse sound. Um, Ammo's always the example we bring up. So let's say yeah. um, most Enter Shikari albums, <laughs> you know, are always mm-hmm. like all over the place, but like don't feel like they have a connective tissue to them. Mm-hmm. Why is Super Unknown cohesive where, say, um, Nothing Is True that last century or ammo or whatever album you want to use an example aren't um i think the personality of the vocalist plays a big part yeah i think when you have a voice like chris cornell who is a just an exceptional what you know one of the all-time great most exceptional vocalists in the history of music full stop yep and who also has a very signature unique recognizable sound Mm -hmm. i mean it's not like there aren't people who try and do the same sort of thing that chris cornell does but no one really sounds like chris cornell apart from chris cornell Mm. so if you put that vocalist unaffected and i'm sure you know there are there are songs in this that have um effects and vocal overdubs and other kind of like a little bit of studio trickery here and there that is there yeah but the quality and the personality and the richness of Chris Cornell's voice shines through as opposed to where you get a vocalist who doesn't have much personality and also doesn't have um, the ability or or the, the unique quality of, of Chris Cornell, a la Ollie Sykes, who mm. needs a lot, who gives very little, so has had, it has to be propped up with quite a lot. Mm. Chris Cornell gives a lot. And it doesn't really need anything to prop himself up with, particularly, I don't think. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Actually, not one I thought about. But yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, 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 Do you know what? I think it comes down quite simply to just the quality of songwriting. I think at the end of the day, when you get a bunch of songs and put them together and the actual quality of the songs is just so high that you can't deny it, it's kind of like it's going to work. Do you know what I mean? And I suppose... I guess in terms of, I guess Soundgarden don't jump around genres in the same way that a Shikari do or a Bring Me the Horizon do or something like that. But it's still enormously diverse within their field. I don't, like, there isn't any, I don't know, is this true? I, I was about to say there isn't anything that you couldn't call vaguely rock on Super Unknown. But then having mm. but having said that, the amount of stuff, I mean, you know, Spoon Man having like this Spoons guy play a spoon solo in it and stuff like that. My Wave has a sort of surf rock type thing to it. You mentioned of, half already. I've know. mentioned half, which is like this, yeah, yeah Middle Eastern um, thing. <laughs> uh, Middle Eastern influenced thing. Um, Kickstand is like pure MC5 punk Iggy Pop Stooges stuff. My Wave has a sort of surf rock thing to it. You know, it's like, it's all... You could all you could call all of it broadly rock, but it is still massively, massively, massively diverse. Well, I think that's the thing as well, isn't it? Is that that there's? I think the thing about Super Unknown is is that it lives within the record collection of a certain type of person. Like no matter how, but someone who really likes music, but you know, like all those things you've just mentioned there, they probably would sit in the record collection of a certain type of person. Mm. And I think actually that thing that we've said a bunch of times in the show before of um not having any limitations but also giving yourself a box in which to maneuver around in yeah i mean 
like this will be something that actually funny enough will get brought up on our next classic album that we're going to do which i'm not going to reveal just yet but mm. that's another thing where you go if that box is quite tight rock mm. and roll you mm. know kind of hard rock if that box it can be in your head oh it, we have to be well not you have to be but we've decided we are going to just be one guitar one bass drums and a vote and a voice mm. in a hard rock band how broad is that well it's not it's not not broad, but mm. at the same time, there's still a box, isn't there? There's still a thing that encompasses all that stuff. And yeah. all, all the things you just mentioned, you know, on this album, I mean, the Led Zeppelin Black Sabbath thing is obvious, but also, mm. you know, like you say, MC5, Stooges, um, uh, the, the more Eastern stuff, the Beatles, you know, there's a lot of Ringo Star-esque, that, ring, that Ringo yeah. beat is yeah. on the, a lot of these songs. Um, and even shit like, I would almost go as far to say like kind of trouble and St. Vitus and really kind of doomy stonery stuff on here as well. Fourth of July. Mm. Yeah. You know, Caius-y bits as well. Um, I mean, I think actually maybe more so on the, the kind of the deserty stuff, maybe even more so on down on the upside than this, but it's still there. Yeah. But those things are ultimately still a classic rock thing, mm. but mm. Soundgarden managed to just like you're like a if you've got that pen that you're being kept in if you're okay greta van fleet you just stand in the corner mm. and you just stick to that thing mm. and there's this whole kind of wide open space that you could explore but you choose yeah. not to yeah, yeah. whereas soundgarden are like a, a pinball bouncing from edge to edge to edge hitting every kind of mark throughout the entirety of this record yeah and to, and to that, do that and make it sound cohesive is, is extraordinary. yeah it's yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it sounds cohesive because actually the box that they exist in is quite tight. They just make it sound not tight. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think there's something to that. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I think a large part of that is kind of like the tapestry and the sounds that um, they managed to get by experimenting a lot in the studio. You know, it feels like there was a, a real kind of Beatles influence on them this record like you know mm. a lot of the stuff that the white album would do the band spent time experimenting with different drum sounds and guitar sounds and all that stuff as well as utilizing layering techniques and resulting in this really expansive sound and beanhorn tried to widen the band sound and get them to look beyond influences they'd had in the past there's a really cool article uh on michael beanhorn in billboard magazine from the time which i think really showcases um his genius in a lot of ways for Soundgarden's chart-topping super unknown Beanhorn strove to broaden the band's attack especially in terms of songwriting and musical texture weaning the band from brute force was the key giving it giving it the impetus to invest in a more subtle power prior to tracking vocals for Black Hole Sun Beanhorn had Soundgarden singer Chris Cornell listen to Frank Sinatra hoping he would take a tip from the crooners of luxurious phrasing and emotional directness now that is a fact that's one of those facts that i kind of knew but had completely forgotten and then i came back to do this research i was like oh yeah and re-listening to black hole sun that crooner aspect to it and i think beanhorn hearing the demo for black hole sun and going okay it's almost there but you just need a bit more of a croony quality frank sinatra you know like that's what i mean by like the library of stuff that he can call, call from and go I don't think many people would listen to black to a, a, a raw demo of Black Hole Sun and go, "This needs more Frank Sinatra in it." But Beanhorn <laughs> has those references. 
Mm. Um, and I think it's it's absolute genius. You can see the uh, Sinatra. Um, Definitely. Yeah, sure. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's brilliant. I think this next quote from the article really sums up the producer's quite incredible musical mind. Uh, for Beanhorn, channeling emotion is the key to any musical performance. And around the time of recording Super Unknown, he became consumed by techno music for its intensity. He cites the noisiest strains of techno out of Rotterdam, as well as Aphex Twin as particular influences. It's some of the rawest music ever made, he said. It's made up of emotional extremes. And I think there's an undercurrent of that on the Soundgarden album. I never imagined for a millisecond that I'd be re referencing Aphex Twin in this classic album. But there you go. You know, that's 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 kind of where that's how broad he looks and goes, OK, we need I mean, Aphex Twin and Soundgarden. Like, do you see a connection? I, I mean, I get what he's talking about in terms of the emotional extremes, but like I that didn't occur to me at all. You know, I know the only Moby. Is that any connection? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the article goes on to give uh, to give super unknown sonic depth and detail. Beanhorn and the band experimented for long hours to come up with striking, varied tonal colorations within the, the confines of traditional rock and roll instrumentation. I think this is exactly what we've just been saying about the record. They developed unusual timbres by mixing and matching amplifiers and guitars, as well as massing sounds to achieve an imposing listening experience. Nowhere is this tactic more apparent than in the claustrophobic din of Fourth of July, on which the slow grinding guitars, thudding drums and heaving vocals cave in around each other to articulate the song apocalyptic thing theme i like things to sound as broad as possible even to the point where instruments are getting in the way of each other overloading tape to the point of distortion using massive eq massive compression beanhorn says we experimented with chains of four equalizers and four compressors in one signal chain on one instrument the end result is a record that is both incredibly dense and overwhelmingly present there is a tangible sense of air being moved that's his way of saying it changes the molecules in the room, I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. True facts. True well, facts. no, I mean, yeah. true f I mean, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about the songs we will. on the record. We will. In a we're getting minute, there. I think, we're getting yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting there. Uh, in fact, we're very close. Super Unknown is 15 songs long, clocking mm. in at approximately 70 minutes. Uh, because Too long, isn't it? <laughs> because according to Cornell, <laughs> we didn't really want to argue over what should be cut. Now, is this record too long? No, of course it isn't. <laughs> it's so varied and it's so diverse and everything on it is of such a high standard of quality that no, it doesn't outstay its welcome. It feels epic. It feels massive. It feels huge. It feels Lord of the Rings. But I wouldn't want anything to go from it nothing personally no, no. there there are, I, I there are one or two songs that people could make arguments for but mm. but um i might make those arguments in that's a fine. Bit just to see that's fine but you know um i think it's a really rich i think i think it works so brilliantly as a whole it's 70 minutes and 13 seconds i'm not including um the international edition which a lot of people listening to this will have with she like surprises on it um but you know that those 15 songs from let me drown to like suicide i just think are just such a brilliant rich tapestry of what re rock music is and was in 1994 um and it just encompasses everything from black sabbath to the beatles and okay. i think that is awesome 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Soundgarden took a break in the middle of recording to open for Neil Young on a 10-day tour of the United States. That's cool. Apparently, it was the fourth time Neil Young had asked them. And um, Soundgarden were always busy either recording or they were already on tour or something like that. And they just got fed up of turning him down because they were like, we, we do really want to tour with Neil Young, so fuck it, we'll just take a break and go out with him. Um, and the band then brought in Brendan O'Brien to mix the album as Beanhorn felt the band needed a fresh pair of ears. O'Brien had come recommended by Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard. Pearl Jam once again uh, recommending uh, people to other bands and uh, helping other bands' careers out, you know, a constant in their uh, a constant in their history, really. Um, and they're great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fine. Um, Shall we go into the songs of the record here? Let's do that. Let's go from the top. Let me drown. Um, The lyrics describe a willing embrace of selfish, evil desires and above all, death. Chris Cornell said, Let Me Drown is about, and I didn't want to say this because Nirvana put out that In Utero album with the fetus all over it, but it was originally about crawling back to the womb to die. So he said that late in an interview, much, much later. And he's such a nice guy that because In Utero had just come out, he didn't want to like take that away from Kurt Cobain. So he didn't really talk Mm. about what it was about, but that is what it was about. Let Me Drown is such a good opener. The moment that riff comes in, unbelievable oh it's so good it just hits you in the face it's so it's such a brutal smack to the solar plexus um i think that riff is dimebag daryl-esque in its genius um it i think if dimebag did it it would have a few more uh, pinch squeals and harmonics and it would be it would be a bit more metal but in terms of the way that Dimebag writes riffs that feels very Dimebaggy to me. So there we go, a Pantera reference straight away. Didn't didn't expect that, but yeah, this riff's written by Chris Cornell, uh, <laughs> you know, and and it's great. Um, your feelings on Let Me Drown, Steve? It's just an absolutely fucking incredible opener. What a banger of an opener! That riff, massive. I love the big freak out in the middle. Yes. It's probably my favourite Incredible solo. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. It's really, uh, I mean, I think I'm going to say it's a lot, but it just goes to showcase not just how good Chris Cornell is at singing, but how good Chris Cornell is at arranging his vocals. Because there's Mm. about, there's about five really catchy, brilliant, interesting choices of vocal Mm. in the, in this opening song. Mm. amazing amazing mm. song mm. amazing yes yeah. I, I hadn't even thought about that but yeah the the places that he goes with his vocals and the uh the, yeah yeah there's like three hooks in the first minute aren't there just mm. three vocal hooks alone um well i mean i mean we don't have to move on immediately but i was about to say my wave he makes the words my wave sound different at least four different ways of making my wave sound Get off my wave, my wave, my wave, my wave. Like he does, it's two words and he does it four different times. And each, every single one of them is completely different and equally as brilliant and equally as surprising and really catchy. He's a fucking genius. Man, you, yeah, put it, put it better than I, yes, absolutely. Um, My wave uh, music by Cornell and Kim Thal. Um, 
my wave is the kind of yeah it's the, where the sort of surf rock influences go in although it doesn't sound like a surf rock song but you can kind of hear where yeah. that comes from i, I tell think. you what they don't they don't apart well um, alice in chains aside maybe and i don't even think they would would have said 1994 i don't even think they would have said it so much about alice in chains but um they don't really talk about groove in grunge much no no they don't you know, like Pearl Jam don't really have much groove and Nirvana certainly never had any groove, really. Like I said, Alice in Chains had a bit. I think the Melvins, when they get to their kind of Atlantic record period, stuck a bit of groove in. But Soundgarden were like my waves got a real kind of metal groove to it. Yeah. Like wicked. It does. It does. Um, I don't want to go into alternate tunings and all that sort of thing too much because this isn't, you know, a guitar magazine or anything like that. Yeah. Um but just to give an example of the bonkers, bonkers tunings, your typical um, guitar tuning is E, A, D, G, B, E. Um, this, there will be a test afterwards, Steve. Uh, this, God. <laughs> my wave is tuned to E, E, B, B, B. Mm. B. I missed out a string. E, E, right. B, 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 B. <laughs> just, just... It's it's bonkers. Let's put it like that. Um, yeah, I, I I love my wave. I think it's a a, a, a wicked song uh, and a wicked. It kind of it, it it slows things down a little bit, but it, it's more sort of mid tempo, isn't it? And yeah, as you say, that groove is just really um, almost like hypnotic. And yeah, the stuff that Chris Cornell does with it, you're absolutely right. I'd never even thought about him singing my wave in four different ways but yeah you're right to, to yeah. get to get so much from so little that is the genius of chris cornell um mm. fell on black days uh a single but in the uk only uh, as a single my wave was a single as well actually i've just noticed i didn't actually know that uh but fell on black days is about uh futility depression and frustration but with subtle hints at hope, despite one's struggle with such feelings. According to Song Facts, singer Chris Cornell conceived of the song long before it was written, but spent years crafting the proper mood for the lyrics. Cornell is quoted by Song Facts as saying, Fell on black days is the feeling of waking up one day and realising you're not happy with your life. Nothing happened. There was no emergency, no accident. You don't know what happened. You were happy. And one day you just aren't. And you have to try and figure that out. Mm. Um, fell on black days, Steve. Right now, here's where my... I'm going to go back to when I first bought this record. Because when I first bought this record, I must have been... I reckon I was 16 when I first bought this record. In fact, I think I bought Down on the Upside before I bought Super Unknown, in fact. Mm. Um, and when I got it, I mean, yeah, I was straight away, I was like, wow, the first two songs. I always felt like Fell on Black Days was a little drop in quality. Ooh. Purely because... I know. <laughs> purely because oh. it just wasn't that heavy. Whereas now, uh, which I think is, I just wanted to throw that in mm. because I thought it was sort of interesting for me to, I used to be like, oh, I don't really care for Fell on Black Days. And listen to it now, I'm like, you stupid little prick. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You stupid little prick. I mean, that creeping, again, we've not actually mentioned Ben Shepard yet, but Ben Shepard, mm. that creeping bass line in that, it's really smoky, this song. I think, again, the tonality of the guitar and again, Cornell. Cornell's amazing in this song. It's just so great. It's you can see why it has become not one of their biggest songs, but it's certainly like one of the the most recognisable songs off this album. I think. Oh, definitely. I think this is a absolutely 
brilliant song that the 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 cyclical riff is absolutely genius um he bends a power chord at one point which is not something that is done very often in music at all in fact there aren't many riffs i can think of that i can play where where a power chord is bent but like it's a really cool thing to do Mm. um we uh matt cameron said we weren't really blown away when we first heard the demos for black days because we hadn't made it into a sound garden song yet but ben added a great bass part that fit with the vocal melody and kim put in some harmony parts on the end that took the song into another gear uh absolutely agree um and when kim thal's solo comes in at the end Oh, it's like it's explosive and love the ending of it. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely phenomenal. You talked about when you first got this record. I mean, you just reminded me um, the day I bought this record. It was like the day I got into grunge. I bought Dirt, Versus and Super Unknown all in the same day. Fucking hell. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's a good day, that. Yeah. And I remember so distinctly going back to my home and sitting on my very, very comfortable sofa uh, with my Sony Discman in front of me um, and just listening to each record um, in a row with the lyric booklet out and all that stuff. I just sat there for, well, that would have taken me about three hours, three and a half hours, I think, to get through those records. And um, I loved all three of them. But weirdly, I think at the time, my you know my favorite was dirt and then versus and then super unknown and weirdly i think that would be that order would be reversed now not saying anything bad against dirt because dirt's incredible future classic album absolutely and they're all so close to each other in terms of quality Mm. they're all 10 out of 10s but um but uh oh man yeah it's 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 interesting how records can kind of creep up on you and change and all that sort of thing yeah. but because my first listen of super unknown i was so i so didn't understand what it was that i i i, I needed more time with it to fully grasp what it was because it's so broad uh, but now that's exactly what i love about it so you know mm. me too yeah um mailman one of the heaviest songs on the record uh i would say and the first song to be written by matt cameron now um hot take matt cameron is the most underrated songwriter of the big four of grunge in my opinion he's yeah he could could well be i've never thought of it before but yes he writes in soundgarden and pearl jam he writes he always writes really interesting odd songs which are kind of unclassifiable in a lot of cases. Uh, he wrote You Are from Riot Act, which is a fucking amazing song. Uh, he wrote this. Um, he, he, he has three writing credits on this album, and all three of them are album highlights for me. Uh, right. And he does some pretty interesting stuff on Down the Upside as well, which we'll get into. But Matt mm-hmm. Cameron just... Uh, he's like... <clears throat> the songwriting equivalent of Michael Beanhorn. He doesn't really have a style, but every single time he does something a bit weird and a bit unusual. And Mailman, I mean, Chris Cornell introduced the song once by saying, this next one is about killing your boss. It's about coming to work early one morning because you have a special agenda and you're going to shoot him in the fucking head. Um, as, you know, it's about it's about a mailman going postal. You know, this is a thing that happens in uh, mm. the US, apparently. The mailmen just go crazy and start shooting everyone up and things like that. Um, it's about 
someone having a psychotic episode effectively this is an album that went to number one in the billboard 200 <laughs> <laughs> yeah insane um and there's something about the uh i guess it's the groove the drive of the groove it's almost sabbath absolutely pure sabbath yeah. but it also kind of sounds it kind of sounds slightly deranged in its mm. hypnotic groove and you can kind of someone it's joker-esque you can imagine you can imagine you know joaquin phoenix sitting there just sort of rocking and just like to something like this you know it, it, it's it it's a perfect synthesis of uh lyrical theme and music i think in that respect um, and Chris Cornell's whole kind of like, I'm going to take you down with me and I'm riding you all the way. And I'm riding you all the way, you know. And the way that he he uh, escalates, I'm riding you all the way. Riding you yeah. all the way, riding. You know, it's, it's just... <laughs> I love... Well, brain fart. I love this song. <laughs> this, this is the moment for me because I think musically, uh -huh. like I say, pure Sabbath worship. Mm. But that voice right now... That kind of I I think there are there are many opportunities for you to go, oh, the slow, lumbering, building kind of tense power of Soundgarden. They are such a like tense sounding band, yeah. like when they do this like duh, duh, like you, when they really kind of grind. But Chris Cornell and the whole thing of oh Soundgarden are Robert Plant fronting fronting black sabbath that's what Soundgarden. Are. that's what everyone used to say oh they're they're led sabbath or they're yeah. black zeppelin or whatever yeah. do you know what i mean yeah. that's the thing they used to go for i think you put mailman on and it proves that chris cornell for all those comparisons and whether they're snidey or whether they're just making that comparison i think this song is proof that he is better than robert plant or ozzy osbourne mm. I, I I mean I'm with you, but but yeah. Yeah. Uh, go I on. mean those those comparisons are fine, mm -hmm. but I think you're actually downplaying how good Chris Cornell is mm. by comparing them to either. I mean, for a start, Ozzy Ozzy's voice sounds good for Black Sabbath songs. They mm -hmm. really suit Tony Iommi's guitar tone. They that kind of high register. But but Ozzy is not a great singer. Like I don't no. think that's. It's not controversial. Come on, it's just a needs fact, to be yes. kind of controversial, yeah. you know, kind of controversial thing. Robert Plant obviously is a very, very, very good singer. Yes, but I don't think Robert Plant is anywhere near. I mean, maybe in his latter years, he's changed quite a lot, and the stuff he's done with Alison Krauss and his, his folksy stuff that he's doing now. You know, fair play to him for actually kind of adapting to something different. But I don't think at any point in Zeppelin's career was Robert would Robert Plant be able to. To, to to go from croon to maniacal in the way that Chris Cornell does mm. it, it, on this song. Mm. I think mm. this mm. song mm. is proof alone that if you're going to rank those three vocalists, you can pick Ozzy or Plant, whichever you want, two mm -hmm. or three. But Chris Cornell's the best one. Chris Cornell's better than both of those vocalists. You know, I back you 100%. And I'm so glad you agree. Um, I thought I was going to say some controversial stuff, but I'm just really on this on this episode. But I'm just glad you... It sounds like you are totally... You agree with yeah, me. Yeah, I don't I, think that's controversial. No, I... I well, But there are people who will think that's controversial. But it isn't. It isn't. Just no, fucking listen to them. The other thing, the other reason why Chris Cornell's better than both Osborne and Plant is the choice that he makes of this song. Imagine if matt cameron your drummer your brilliant drummer 
brings in that with this really dirgy that Sabbath riff song. And you think you like immediately most people would choose to try and match that. But Chris Cornell actually does the opposite. The opening melody, Hello, don't you know me? I'm the dirt beneath your feet. You know, it's beautiful. There's that falsetto thing in there. Like he's doing this really beautiful thing over this horrible dirgy riff and again it's that juxtaposition between those two things which actually kind of makes it seem even weirder and stranger and scarier and again yeah 100 i back you i want to say 150 percent or whatever but i hate it when people do that but <laughs> but you know yes i completely back you and i think that is exactly why chris cornell is just an absolute underrated genius and I, th I feel like it's only kind of getting the props he deserves in his death sadly um yeah but yeah um what a song and what a band super unknown the title track chris cornell stated in a 1994 interview for pulse magazine that the inspiration for the album's title came from a, a misreading of a vhs cover from a vital entitled super clown he also <laughs> said i thought it was a cool title i'd never heard it before never saw it before and it inspired me there we go. Um, this is written by Kim Thal and Chris Cornell. Really psychedelic, almost, um, would you say 70s psychedelic, 60s psychedelic kind of sound to it? That weird riff. Yeah, 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 it is. But also it's just, it's it's got a kind of proper heavy metal feel to it, I think. Yeah. I mean, I have yeah. to say that when, going back to when I first heard it, um, and I was a bit ho-hum about Fell on Black Days. This was my favourite song on the record because oh. it was just, you know, the most of the album I felt was far more of a kind of rock album, whereas this was a, you know, a screaming metallic headbanger of a song. And it's pretty much, I would say, as instant as the record gets. Mate, yeah, 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 yeah. I think uh, you're probably right. It's interesting that you pointed to this as like the metal tune and not say 4th of July or something like that. But yeah, yeah. but do you know what I mean? It is more I, of I a, do know. I mean, I'm thinking of a kind of Judas Priest type yeah. metal. Okay. Like yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I love Super Unknown. Um, I, I think it's never, it, it's never, it's never really been a favourite of mine, if I'm totally honest. But I do think it's brilliant. I mean, I think it's an absolutely class song more brilliant solo stuff from kim thar i've sort of been holding off on this because i feel like i'm just going to go on about kim thar and his solo style but let's just go into it now i think um kim thar has a is one of those guitarists where you hear him play particularly when you hear him solo and you go that's kim thar and um i think he always had that to an extent but he really found that kim thar wah wah let's play shit loads of notes um but actually also have a kind of hook threading through my solo at the same time. I think he properly encapsulated that signature sound on this album, I would say. Yeah. There were glimpses of fair. it on Bad Motorfinger. There were glimpses of it on Loud Love. Uh, not so much on Ultra Mega Okay, to be honest. Um, but but this is the record where he get, where you go, oh, that's the Kim Thal signature thing. Um, and it has his best work on it as well and i think the super unknown solo is up there with the best stuff he's done um, yeah, it's amazing. yeah absolutely fantastic uh head down i think this is the first point in the record where we 
get a really weird song, like a proper weird song. <laughs> this is uh, a song written completely by Ben Shepard, the bassist. Um, uh, he did the lyrics and the music. And this is a really dour, depressing song. I think for, for a genre, quote unquote, that is you know seen as really depressing and dark and disturbing and blah 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 head down is up there with uh one of the most depressing dour songs of the entire genre is it not yeah i, I yeah yeah it's i think it's also i mean it does i think you know what makes this record brilliant is stuff like this because you know this is a a fantastic exercise in changing the mood dramatically yes. on the record like dramatically and, swerving um you know handbrake turn into a completely different direction um and, and yet it's still working cohesively. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah um that kind of floydy psychedelic stuff um it's got a bit of it's got a bit of the planet caravan to it i think as yeah, well yeah i hadn't thought of that, um yeah. a kind of led zep three thing to it it is yeah. kind of dour but it's also quite spacious and i think if you don't pay too much attention to it you could think it was quite a kind of a nice hippy dippy song but it's no, only because right. it's got a real sort of i don't know there's just a sort of over foreboding sense of darkness that surrounds it that makes it feel as dark as it really is but i think if you were to passively listen to it you could think oh it's a sort of nice floydy psychedelicy, you know smoky thing Yes, yes. It's great yes. though. I mean, it's great. It's great. And like I say, as an exercise in just going, you don't know what's coming. Fucking amazing. Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, I'm really glad you said that. I, I, I was wondering how you'd feel about Head Down. I thought I might have to fight for it a bit. But um, I personally like Soundgarden the most when they're being weird. And, and Head Down is really weird. And I love how psychedelic and odd this song is. I think you're right, actually. I, I was kind of, when I'm saying it was dow dour and sad, I was mainly thinking of, the, thinking of the lyrics, you know, stuff like, we see you try, we see you fail, some things never change. We hear you cry, we hear you wail, we steal that smile from your face. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> you know... Uh, uh, but you're right if yeah if you were just listening to it passively and not really paying attention to the lyrics yes you could probably be like ah hippies flowers yeah smoke a joint in the in the sun yeah 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 no absolutely and it's got a lovely kind of that that kind of 12 string acoustic jim yes. page jing, jing, like like so which is a really bright you know, it's the only thing on the song, really, that it, but it cuts through how bright that guitar is. It yeah. sounds fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah. This is a song which it is vital to get the sound of it right. All of that experimentation that they were doing with Michael Beanhorn and all that sort of thing. You know, a band could cover this song and it would not sound good. I guess it's that Beatles thing, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the attention to detail that makes it brilliant. It's the sonic kind of there's so much going on with it and and it's six six minutes and eight seconds long this song which is quite long but i never think of it as a long song i don't either i I'm almost actually, even though i knew that i was quite surprised as you said it it's and the, the second time i've listened to it it's the second longest song on the album and i almost see it as a bit of an interlude do you know what i mean like there's just something mm. hypnotic about it i think it's a really underrated song um and i i love it i love this song and fair play this is the bassist wrote this i mean no offense to bassists but that, you know this is this is 
like this is the sign of a great band when your bassist comes in with this this is fucking great yeah. um we don't really need to cover black old sun do we only joking <laughs> uh, <laughs> black old sun so yes uh something we like to do on this uh, or something that we've started adopting which i think is kind of fun the whole um mm. uh these types of songs uh is this a song that you put on uh and want to listen to is this a song that when it comes on you're like oh i fucking love this song or is this a song that you never ever want to hear ever ever again where does it fall for you steve in in, in all honesty it probably feels it falls in the middle i would agree when when I hear it, I love it. But then I don't ever find myself going, I must put on Black Hole Sun. Yeah. Because I think the weird the thing with Black Hole Sun is, I mean, we've spoken about some big songs mm. since we've brought this thing up. Black Hole Sun is only ever half an hour away from being on the radio. It's only ever, you know, an hour away from being on music television. It's only ever, you know, a couple of songs away on some Spotify playlist from mm-hmm. coming on. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're gonna hear black. You don't need really. You don't really need to put Black Hole Sun on. No, it will come on. Yep, I agree. No, I totally, totally agree. But every time, it, you know, and I'm always like, when I'm, I'm not listening to it right now. So right now, I'm like, oh yeah, Black Hole Sun. It's a great song, but you know, I don't love it or anything like that. And then it comes on, and I hear that lovely Leslie effect come in. You know, and. Uh, I'm just immediately transported and I, I like this is a this is the reason this song is the reason this album got to number one this song this song is the reason why this weird eclectic diverse odd record got to number one and it is brilliant it's it is a brilliant brilliant all-time classic song it's the kind of song that I feel like when the apocalypse comes and a couple are, you know, only a couple of people are surviving, there'll be some cunt on an acoustic guitar playing this song. You know, it is indestructible. It is going to be here forever. Um, and it's just, it's just massive. I mean, that's huge. Everyone, myself included, I have to say, when they were doing their tributes to Cornell, cited the no one sings like you anymore line i mean it's Mm. obvious but it's kind of difficult not to do this to cite that um and in terms of the song itself i mean do you know what the song's about i don't really no i don't well that's funny because neither does chris cornell um he stated it's just sort of a surreal dreamscape a weird play with the title kind of song lyrically it's probably the closest to me just playing with words for words sake uh, of anything i've written i guess it worked for a lot of people who heard it but i have no idea how you'd begin to take that one literally in another interview he elaborated further stating it's funny because hits are usually sort of congruent sort of an identifiable lyric idea and that song pretty much had none the chorus lyric is kind of beautiful and easy to remember other than that i sure didn't have an understanding of it after i wrote it it was just sucked in by the music and i was painting a picture with lyrics there was no real idea to get across um it feels like one of those songs that just falls out of the sky yeah, it's weird because I can kind of remember the first time I ever heard Black Hole same, Sun. Same. I've got a really vivid memory of the first time I ever heard it. I, it saw, in... I saw it with the video. Mm. Did you? Yeah. I had, um, uh, I was at school and somebody, but there's a CD called Rocked. And it was <laughs> like somebody had brought the CD in, which was like a kind of compilation album. 
and it had I Alone by Live on it. It had Rocks by Primal Scream. It had Inside by Stiltskin. It had Scream Major by Stiltskin. Therapy on it. Oh, nice. And it had Black Hole Sun on it. Mm. And we put it on. And I remember being like, Soundgarden, like, sort of being like, oh, that that's the band, that band Soundgarden that people are going on about a lot at the moment. So it probably was just after it came, 1994, after it just came out. And we were allowed to put the CD on it in class. And I remember it was... Um, it was some kind of it was a like business study so it was learning how to work a computer which we didn't have the internet back then kids uh it was <laughs> would have been like some kind of bullshit data entry fucking thing that i was doing mm. and i just remember black Hole sun coming on and just being like holy shit like by the end like holy shit like, i couldn't couldn't concentrate on what i was doing just totally totally jaw on the floor like this is fucking unbelievable this song and it starts like when it started i was like oh i thought you know because scream major and all the other songs i mentioned they start like they're rockers they start straight away and then you hear this do 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 these little chords and and it takes a little while to get going and i was like oh this is a slow one. Oh no i don't like the slow ones but by the end i was like fuck this is unbelievable yeah. and the video like you say the video like now is just such a massively iconic iconic video and yeah the melting yeah. faces and the, the sort dog of... being surprised. Yes, yes, the weird. Yeah, I mean that the images in that video really stayed with you. I guess you could, looking back at it at twenty 2020, twenty in twenty twenty one, you could look back at it and go, "All oh, the effects are a bit dated and stuff like that." But actually, there's something that's really eerie about the effects, and I I don't think mm. it really matters that they're a bit dated because it's still it still looks really eerie and weird. Those weird kind of smiles as something apocalyptic is happening um i yeah i mean black hole sun it is it is absolutely phenomenal it's a phenomenal song um it probably wouldn't even be in my top five of my favorite songs on this record but it is phenomenal properly mm. properly phenomenal yeah um, i kind of yeah I, I might agree with you on that you know it might not make my top five yeah. Uh, commenting upon how the song was misinterpreted as being positive, uh, which I didn't really realise it ever was, but um, apparently it was. Chris Cornell said, no one seems to get this, but Black Hole Sun is sad. But because the melody is really pretty, everyone thinks it's almost chipper, which is ridiculous. I agree. Who fucking thinks that? I don't know, but apparently, you know, someone put it to him and he said, oh, what do you think of people thinking Black Hole Sun's a really positive message or whatever? And, and, and he said, he was like, no, that's what the fuck are they hearing but you know i guess um in my eyes like it is i guess it is quite a yeah no no i don't get it either <laughs> i just thought well, i'd throw I mean, it in there in <laughs> download 2012 I mean, we're jumping forward a little bit now but in download 2012 when they played and it had been fucking awful is you know they nearly the whole festival nearly got called off but by sunday the sun had come out and stuff and it stopped raining and when they played Black Hole Sun, quite early on in their set, quite surprisingly early on in their set, the contrary Seattle bastards that they mm. are, mm. Um, it was amazing to see like just the sun come up from out from behind the cloud, and it was, yeah, it was just an it was it was actually quite an amazing thing to be like, oh yeah, fuck, mm. look at mm. this. Right. But sometimes you can get a joy out of something melancholy, you know, like yeah, it's uh, like I've said this before, but like I actually get more joy out of melancholy music than i do out of um so-called happy music you know um and I, I always think that 
I'm sure I've said this before, but I always think that people who are like, oh, that's a sad song, so it makes me sad, and that's a happy song, so it makes me happy, is always a bit of a basic bitch way of looking at it. Not that that, you know, not that you can't, um, not that you can't feel happy when a happy song comes on or you can't feel sad when a sad song but if that's all you get every single time i'm like come on yeah. <laughs> come on mate um but yeah black hole sun fucking amazing mm. spoon man you've f- heard it you like it you've heard it you like it you know you, pff, come on spoon man the first single released from the album features artists the spoon man playing the spoons the spoon solo maybe the only spoon solo to be on a commercial rock record or a rock record i don't know i can't think of another example uh, knife we go to the old knife um stuff on the paper chase again not really a commercial rock record that's not a a spoon solo is it well it's (laughs) It's a knife solo (laughs) i mean in, in terms of cutlery solos yes they go together yeah. okay. <laughs> spoon um it's interesting chris Gornell said with this record i think it will be easier to take one song out of context and make it a single the problem with us though is that if we take one song of the album's context and push it as a single it wouldn't be representative of the album at all well that is true um how on earth do you represent the entire record with one song you just, it's too broad you just can't but spoon man yeah. Not a bad choice, I have to say. I'm going to throw this in in a typical Renfrey fashion. This is my second least favourite song on the record. And that is a sign of how fucking great this album is, in my opinion. Because Spoon Man's brilliant, don't get me wrong. But if I had to rate the songs in order, it would be my second least favourite. Your thoughts on really? Spoon Man? Yeah. I love it. I mean, it's the classic Soundgarden set opening song isn't yes it? yes spoon man every time i've seen them they opened with that i think i think um, yes that's po- possibly true of me as well i think yes and that's good i although i didn't see them playing this album in full on the 4th of july no when no they supported Black I, sadly. okay yeah. fair enough um sorry that they wouldn't have done it then but uh i love i mean i love i love this song i love how it's, it's weird i mean i love the backing vocals i love how mm-hmm. choppy the riff sounds i love that kind of call and response thing i love that big rhythmic spoon solo breakdown at the mm-hmm. end it's got the most bounce on the record i reckon mm-hmm. yeah 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 it's, it's it most, makes sense it's the most new metal song on the record yeah it is yeah it's probably <laughs> the most new metal song on super unknown uh we will be telling you what the most grunge song on chocolate starfish is at some point as well uh, <laughs> um and the most thrash song on Definitely Maybe. We'll do, we do all that, yeah. Um, I, I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I agree with everything you're saying. I think it's. I think this song's brilliant. I'm, I'm trying to highlight the brilliance of this record. This is my second least favourite song on the album. And it's fucking Spoon, man. It's brilliant, you know. Yeah, um, yeah I love it. I mean, great song. But yeah, you're right. It is, I guess, it's. I don't want to say it's fairly unremarkable, a fairly unremarkable song. I think it's kind of fairly unremarkable in the company in which it is surrounded by. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. It's a brilliant song, but when you compare it to, I mean, what's coming up and, you know, uh, yeah. Um, Spoon Man is a fascinating example of that sugar thing eh? um, of <laughs> taking something that is actually a little bit weird and making it sound really uh simple that main riff is in seven eight uh which is not a typical um uh which is not a typical thing to like groove to or 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 or, or it's it's not a typical rhythm at all for a single or anything like that um but that riff doesn't sound 
weird or odd. They just make it sound, you know, you know, it, it just sounds great straight away. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that whole thing of taking something quite complex and making it sound simple is just brilliantly done with this song. For sure. Um, it's... <laughs> uh, so yes, artist the Spoon Man is credited with spoons. Ben Shepherd is credited with additional vocals. Jeff Amon from uh, Pearl Jam is credited with title. Uh, he came up for the title with this song when uh, on the set for the 1992 film Singles, they were trying to come up with fictional band names for um, for the band that feature in that film. They eventually went with Citizen Dick, uh, which I think is a, probably a better name than Spoon Man for that band. Um, but out of the potential names, Chris Cornell created a few songs for the movie. And one of those was Spoon Man, inspired by Californian yet radio radicated in seattle street artist artist uh artist the spoon man an acoustic version appears in the background of a scene of singles and later cornell developed a full-fledged version for soundgarden's next album so yeah so this song started out as a not a joke but he was writing it for a fake band in a film and then it became spoon man it's pretty cool fair fucking play um uh, Chris Cornell hadn't met artist the Spoon Man before he came into the studio to do the Spoon solo. Uh, it was an ode to an imaginary person in my head. So what's happening musically is the attitude of supporting this guy who stands on a street corner and plays the shit out of some spoons rather than a specific person um, who does that. But then they brought artists in and he does that wicked spoon solo. Lovely stuff. Um, limo Wreck. Mm-hmm is probably mm. my favorite song on the record mm, yeah probably me too oh yes um i think this is where the album really peaks for me. oh I feel like yes. it's been building and building and building and for me i say this is my favorite song i mean really the next two songs i yes. think yes are yes perfect yes. i mean this yes. is essentially everything that i could ever possibly desire from sound yes limo wreck <laughs> yes um <laughs> another matt cameron composition matt cameron yeah, yeah. and kim thal this time again most underrated uh songwriter in the grunge movement i think matt cameron uh lyrics by chris cornell um the sheer doominess and oppression of this song is unbelievable um uh, a, a gentleman called fred chaloner is uh, credited with harmonic guidance when you think of that opening um riff it's got this really slow sludgy feel to it but there's all this, also these natural harmonics that are being played over the top the doo -doo -doo, boo -boo -boo, kind of things and um I'm, I'm guessing he just helped like find the right harmonies for that but again it's that attention to detail and the the fact that that stuff is really difficult to replicate yeah, really, really, really hard to replicate. Um, the Chris Cornell performance on this song. Uh, people wang on about Slaves and Bulldozers being the best Chris Cornell performance ever. And I can see that. That's fair enough. But I say, no, it is Limerick. And the <laughs> wreck of you is the death of you all. It's, but it, it's fucking massive. It's it's the same thing as we were saying with Melman, I think. Like at the start when he's doing that smoky, croony... Um, when the mm. whole thing washes yeah like yeah. fucking unbelievable and then for him to get to to get to um, and the 
back to that bit mm. and then to go and then he even he does the Westlife stood up key change thing at the end as well yeah yeah yeah. which uh, I mean that was the point where I remember sort of first hearing it being like this song's fucking amazing yeah. and then when the rest of, like when that bit comes in yeah. I was just like I don't, oh, fucking hell like I don't know how much further you can go you can't like Mariah Carey yeah that 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 is the top and uh yeah when uh what was it when while the rest of you harvest the souls mm. you know the, it's so doomy and apocalyptic I mean I, I hear a song like Limo Wreck and I think I think Limo Wreck is the reason why I generally don't go in for Doom Metal because I'm like, well, none of you can do this. None of you get within a fucking like none of you can hold a candle to this. I like I don't think they're trying to give them their props, but, you know, maybe. But I, well, I, it, there is a very doomy feel to Limo Wreck. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, to this. But yeah, uh, I, I mean, I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess they're not. But like at the same time, I'm just like, I just think this is a perfect. Yeah, this is perfect. This song. I think this song and the next song is perfect. We'll get onto that in a second. But also Kim Thar's incredible shrill solo, which is very untypical of Kim Thar. The mm. So good. That is uh that's not a typical Dahl thing to do, but it 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 matches the song perfectly. Um yeah, I, I, I do think this is the, the best song on an almost perfect record. I think yeah. it's absolutely incredible. Um it stands every part, every single part. I mean it's expertly put together, emotional, doomy, gritty, involving, inspiring, cinematic. It's just it's just everything, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's just everything. Yeah. Having just said all of that, it stands toe to toe with the day I try to live. And uh, if you'd asked me on another day, there is a chance that I'd say the day I try to live is my favourite song on the record as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, may, maybe the best ever Soundgarden song for me. Mm, like if mm. you're if you're talking about, you know, objectionable or being objective or whatever, I think you could sit down and go. This is the best song that they ever created. I, I, I yes i think i agree with you actually yeah um ah oh, everything about this song uh, where should we start the day, I, the day i try to live is a somewhat fatalistic song about trying to do one's best and failing despite having the best intentions it does contain undercurrents of optimism as vocalist and primary songwriter chris cornell explained it's about trying to step out of being patterned and closed off and reclusive, which I've always had a problem with. It's about attempting to be normal and just go and be around other people and hang out. I have a tendency to sometimes be pretty closed off and not see people for long periods of time and not call anyone. It's actually, in a way, a hopeful song. A lot of people misinterpreted that song as a suicide note, taking the word live, to, live too literally. He later added that with the day I tried to live, the attitude I was trying to convey was that thing that I think everyone goes through where you wake up in the morning and you just don't know how you're going to get through the day and you kind of just talk yourself into it. You may go through different moments of hopelessness and wanting to give up or wanting to just get back into bed and say, fuck it. But you convince yourself you're going to do it again. Maybe this is the last time you're going to do it, but it's once more around. Mm. It's a song about depression. Um, I mean, in, in the aftermath of Chris Cornell's passing away, I mean, I think this yeah. has taken on an even more of a meaning mm. than importance to me. But at the same time, I can't really say that it didn't have that importance Before. previously I anyway. Agree. I agree. So, I mean, it's a rare, I think it's a kind of, 
Soundgarden and R are very open, but like Chris Canova, there's does a there's a lot that's emotionally open and honest in their music. But there's it's a there's a even though this is quite a heavy song at some points, it's a it's a rare piece of delicate delicate nature. There's something more delicate about this than there is most other Soundgarden songs as well. well whilst the, also take, being take the opening riff. Yeah. That opening riff is so delicate, almost Buckley-esque, you know. Um, yeah, I thought that the other day when I was listening to it. I was like, there's a lot of Jeff Buckley about this. Yeah. Song. I mean, of course, they came out, you know, Grace came out the same year. So I, d- I don't think one was influenced by the other. But I th- but there are a lot of Buckleyisms, I think, um, anyway. There's a lot of things that I, I can attribute to that. Um, and then that bass line. do 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 that that is a classic bass line it's not it's not like again it's not a simple bass line it's a weird it's in a really weird time signature this song (laughs) yet again and yet it's that brilliant thing of um soundgarden putting forward something uh which is really weird um and making it sound simple um every single line chris cornell sings on this song sounds like a hook as one more time around my do it you know um and even the verse like i walk the same as any other day except there's that croony quality to it it's just absolutely i this is a yeah a perfect song a perfect song i i i love it and yes yes objectively the best sound garden song i would go with that i think it's absolutely astonishing Mm astonishing song we've kind of peaked haven't we i mean this is what this at this point on this album as good as this album is i feel like this album peaks here and not in a bad way because i think that they do well we're going to talk about kickstand next and i think it's a again i think it's a, a, a sensible thing for them to to do what they do with kickstand because you can't go any higher than where they've been with the last couple of songs i just don't think they can exactly i'm so glad you so kickstand right i think let's face it is probably the worst song on the album probably objectively but kickstand is essential to the record because it's just a total change and it's a total palate cleanser and once you have the high of day i try to live yeah, how do you follow that? Well, you follow it by going in a completely different direction and going from being going from something that is so um personal and and means so much to something a bit more surface level and a bit more, you know, it's MC5esque, it's Stooges-esque. It is not a bad song. Do not get me wrong. And I actually I actually have a real fondness for kickstand personally because my old band used to cover it um so you know i'm I'm actually really 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 fond of this song but if you're looking at it from a kind of you know objective point of view and all that sort of stuff kickstand is probably the worst song on the record but it's still fucking brilliant (laughs) Uh, you're not agreeing with the the worst song on the record uh... no i don't i don't actually i mean we'll, we'll we haven't got to that yet, but okay. you know, we're fourth of July and it rubbish. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I already know which one you say, but that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, no, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's straightforward punk rock, like you say, and it's a significant drop off in terms of how good those songs are. Mm-hmm. But like I say, you know, you have to go, you, you have to just draw a line under it and it makes a lot of sense. 
And it's the shortest song on the record. So it kind of, it's not like they labored the point either. No, it's a minute and a you half, know, isn't it? it? If, Ki- if Kickstand was three and a half minutes long, you might be like, okay, lads. Yes, exactly. But it's a minute and 34, so yes, exactly. whatever. Exactly. That's, that's the thing. And it's such a, you, you couldn't have the day I tried to live going into fresh tendrils. It just no. wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Despite those, both of those songs being phenomenal as we we're about to get onto, but you couldn't, that wouldn't work. But having Kickstand in the middle of it just makes the whole sequencing work again like in terms of sequencing this record is just absolutely phenomenal music by kim thal lyrics by chris cornell i mean yeah i don't think there's much more to say on kickstand but you know a a great song if somewhat throwaway but you know still brilliant Mm. and still essential to the album uh fresh tendrils the last of the matt cameron um compositions for the record uh the lyrics were by cameron and chris cornell oh in terms of groove um this song is just unbeatable i think in that but it's actually a bit of a weird groove classic matt cameron type thing to do he gets you dancing even though it's a weird thing to dance to um the clavinet in this song the clavinet is a kind of uh well it's a it's a it's a a keyboard type um instrument what am i trying to say keyboard it's a stringed keyboard type instrument um but it's uh god what's the clavinet used in it's actually used in it was used in a lot of old kind of baroque type music and things like that but the way that it's used here it just sort of underpins the riff and gives this kind of strange edge to it it's the sort of thing that john paul jones would have used in latter day led zeppelin songs i think and the clavinet really really adds a weird sort of odd vibe to this i imagine that was uh michael beanhorn which suggested that it's played by natasha schneider um but it is super super cool um once again chris cornell really makes this doesn't he your your, Mm. sorry your feelings on fresh tendrils before we go well it's funny because this is one of the songs that i often forget about on the record until it comes on Mm. and i really love i mean the loose as fuck guitars that they have on it i think are really cool like it feels feels a bit i mean it's kind of a precursor to a a lot of the i think the approach that they would go on to that we'll talk about on down on the upside a little bit i think Mm -hmm. Mm um yeah it's it's a it's a great song and it's yeah it's just a little bit of um a little bit different to i mean everything's kind of bit different from everything else on this record but i think it's one of those ones where i go ah i can kind of see where you might have gone oh we that, we were good at that let's do mm. a bit more of that mm. i would argue it's the most underrated song on the record um i i i, th- I think it's so oh i mean again i said it before i love soundgarden where they're being weird I love it when they're mm. weird. And this is this is a really odd song. And what you say about those the loosest of those guitars, it does kind of sound like it's on a knife's edge the entire time and it's about to collapse. But Chris Cornell just kind of pulls it through and that whole long time coming. Like that that melody is amazing. Um the moment where the band all stop uh and he sings bounce down before you is i think the best five seconds of recorded music in history oh wow um it is it is the most spine tingling 
brilliant moment. The drums continue, don't they? But but the rest of the band drop out and it's just Cornell going, bow down before you. It's, it's one of the best examples of that ever done in music. Yeah, it's very good. It's it so good. good. I love Flesh, um, Fresh Tendrils and no one ever seems to talk about it. But yeah, I think it's, it's weird, isn't it? Even I, song. even I, when we came to it, I was like, oh, fresh tr- oh yeah. And then I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's partly because of where it's placed. It's track 12 on a 15 track record. And, mm. and, and at the end of the day, the riches that are on Super Unknown are so, like there's so many of them. It's just forgotten about because there's loads yeah. of other shit to talk about as well. But Fresh Tendrils is phenomenal. Um, Fourth of July is talked about quite a lot, particularly from people who like metal, <laughs> usually. Yeah. Um, any idea what Fourth of July is about, Steve? Uh, fourth of July, fireworks in the Fourth. <laughs> I'm going to guess that's no. You don't. Uh, that's not entirely no. surprising because it is fairly esoteric. But from an interview with Chris Cornell in uh, R.I.P. magazine from April 1994. One time I was on acid and there were voices 10 feet behind my head. The whole time I'd be walking, they'd be talking behind me. It actually made me feel good because I felt like I was with some people. At one point I was looking back and I saw that one person was wearing a black shirt and jeans and the other person was wearing a red shirt. They were always there. It was kind of like a dream, though, where I'd wake up and look and focus once in a while and realise there was no one there. I'd go, oh, fuck, I'm hearing voices. Fourth of July is pretty much about that day. You wouldn't get that if you read it. It doesn't read like woke up, dropped some acid and got into the car and went to the Indian reservation. But that's what it's about. (laughs) Bonkers. Mm. Um, Fourth of July, again, in terms of doom, the way that Soundgarden do doom, that really crushing low tuned riff. And then it's kind of augmented further by those weird bass sort of drops that Ben Shepard's doing on, uh, yeah. on, 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 on his bass. Um, in terms it's as depressing as they've ever sounded. Oh yeah. 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 But, but, oh, but it's so good. This is a brilliant example of a song which is really, really depressing, but just makes me feel so happy yeah. <laughs> inside. And I again, mean, it's so oppressive and so heavy and so dark. It's like, I mean, yeah, of course the metal, the metal head would love this one, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I, 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 you know, we've spoken about before, neither of us are massive, massive doom heads. We do have the odd um love you know we do have the odd time where we listen to doom was like oh it's amazing we did that big brave record quite recently which i think has doom elements to it yeah um but you know generally we're not a massive fan i think it's because keeping keeping my interest in a doom song is something that is incredibly difficult to do fourth of july is five minutes and eight seconds and there isn't a single second i would shave off it i think fourth of july could be twice as long and I still think it's a masterpiece. I just think it's absolutely incredible. And just stuff like at the end of the solo, uh, when um, Chris Cornell does those vocal um, oohs, there's ooh, and there's that amazing harmonic resonance thing which goes up and lifts the song when the riff comes back. It's it's absolute genius. This song, it's absolutely mm. incredible yeah it's fucking brilliant yeah. so good phenomenal phenomenal song all right so um steve's least favorite song on the record i'm guessing half yeah yeah a bit of a waste of time i think it's kind of a nice little detour get a different vocalist but 
it is just a funny little thing, I think. Half. If I was going to take anything off, I've got no problem with it being there, really. Mm. It's not that long. But, you know, I don't think I need half, mm. really. Uh, I... Again, my argument for it is um, going from Fourth of July straight into like suicide would be just too, too much, too much pain and depression, and <laughs> you know I think it would be a bit too much. I think it's a great palate cleanser. Um, this is lyrics and music by Ben Shepherd. Uh, it also features Viola played by April as. Severs and cello by Justin Foy. Chris Cornell refused to sing on half, insisting that it would lose its character without Ben's voice. Um, I certainly think that Ben Shepherd adds an interesting flavour to it. He's obviously nowhere near the vocalist Chris Cornell is, but I understand where Cornell's coming from with that. Um, it's a strange sort of Middle Eastern y, yeah, almost interlude type thing. Um, but then it goes into this weird kind of like boom, 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 boom. And I really love that bassy minute outro thing. And and for that alone, I'm like, no, 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 you have to keep half on because I think it's awesome. I, I love that. Boom, boom, boom. I, I, I think it's really cool. I, I understand what you're saying regarding the song. It is definitely one of the more throwaway aspects on it. But I argue it is essential to the record because of it being a bridge between Fourth of July and Like Suicide. Yeah, I, I I guess so. Yeah, I mean, like I say, I've never really wanted to listen to it. Like Kickstand, I'm always like, yeah, but mm. I've never really found half particularly enjoyable. Especially, like it's the worst song on the record, and I think two for two. I think you. Well, I mean, I reckon I could probably go Fourth of July into like suicide. Uh, that's twelve minutes of being kind of depressed. It's mm. enough for me. I can handle that. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah fair enough okay so like suicide um so cornell was working on a demo for a 10 minute long psychedelic lament in his basement when he heard a loud thump from above him and he went upstairs to investigate and discovered a small robin in dire pain after having flown headfirst into his window the cornell cornell put the bird out of its misery and buried its remains in his garden and then he went back to continue working on the song and started writing the lyrics, heard it from another room, dazed out in a garden bed with a broken neck, lays my broken gift, just like suicide. In the liner notes for the 20th anniversary deluxe reissue of this album, Chris commented on how it became a metaphor for trauma he was still processing. So yes, on the one hand, the lyrics are quite literal, um, but they had also stirred in him some unprocessed grief for those that he had lost. And that included his friend, housemate and fellow musician, Andrew Wood of Mother Lovebone, one of the brightest stars of the nascent Seattle scene who had died in 1990 of a heroin overdose. Cornell described Like Suicide as about all of these beautiful lives around us, twice as bright and half as long, careening into walls. But Cornell went on, after the funerals, we feel better about ourselves when we're able to get up the next day. Um, I've seen some people try to ascribe a link between like suicide and Kurt Cobain's death, which actually occurred exactly four weeks after the release of Super Unknown. And, you know, I think I think that's an example of the sort of grand mythologizing that many people attribute to the Seattle scene. Um and I think people from Seattle 
absolutely despise that kind of grand mythologizing. And I understand why that kind of mythologizing is so tempting to do. I had to sort of stop myself from doing it a couple of times doing research for this. Um, the truth is there was a lot of death around the Seattle scene because heroin had become a big problem and musicians were just writing about what was happening around them. But what I think is interesting uh, and, you know, bearing in mind what I've just said about the mythologizing, and I don't want to go into that too much, but I think if you look back on it, on reflection, you can, if you so wish, ascribe a sort of musical full stop to the original grunge movement with the song like suicide yeah i agree obviously life isn't quite it isn't quite as neat and tidy as that and there were some you know great grunge albums and songs that emerged post cobain's suicide we're going to talk about one in the second part but it certainly seemed to mark the beginning of a shift in the media and the public's focus it's one of those coincidences in music where a certain song comes out at a certain time just so happens to capture a moment capture something modern music history is littered with we, examples we spoke about ghost town didn't we on our specials ghost special, town on the specials that it would be the kind of bullseye one of those I yeah think. yeah yeah um i was gonna i was gonna um uh, bring up run the jewels just as a modern example mm -hmm. that album coming out the week of the murder of the of george floyd um but just like that example it was something that had been happening in seattle for a long time uh, this wasn't new. There's a beautiful moment 10 minutes into the brilliant PJ20 documentary where Chris Cornell tears up talking about seeing Mother Lovebone singer uh, and his former roommate Andy Wood hooked up to life support machines after taking uh, this accidental overdose. And this quote sums up what I mean when I say it was something that was happening in Seattle for a long time. He said, it's difficult to articulate, but up to that point, I think life was really good for us as a group of musicians in this scene making music. The world was sort of our oyster and we had support. We supported each other. And he was kind of like this beam of light sort of above it all. And to see him hooked up to machines, that I think was the death of the innocence of the scene. It wasn't later when people surmised that Kurt blowing his head off was the end of the innocence. It was that. It was walking into that room. It was... I think the people around the Seattle scene and the people around the grunge scene kind of felt like it was done before it even exploded. And then it mm. exploded. And I think mm. this is, you know, people kind of look at those musicians and go, why are they so sad all the time? Why are they so dour? And it's like, because, because their friends were dying all around them. Like there's, 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 I mean, I think there's lots of reasons, but like, you know, and, and like suicide really, uh, sums that up i think in a way uh, and it's weird how this this robin flying into chris cornell's you know window upstairs it's weird how that tiny little event triggered all of these things and and it feels like one of those songs that he didn't even realize what he was writing about as he was writing it but then sort of looked back on it and went oh that's what that was about as well and i think that happens loads i think that happens all the time people write songs and don't really understand what it's about until maybe five years later, 10 years later, and they look back on it and go, oh, that's what I meant, you know? Yeah. And you look back at the grunge movement now and it's almost as obsessed with death as death metal is. They just look at it through a different lens, you know? Mm. Uh, pop punk was the next genre that the rock press and fans latched onto. And I think it's easy to see that as a reaction to the, mor the morbidity that surrounded grunge. I mean, Green Day's Dookie came out 1st of November 94, but it didn't really catch on till the summer. 
I was surprised to learn that it only sold 9,000 copies in its first week. And considering it went on to sell 20 million copies worldwide, you know, it, it was it was the it was it was a reaction to that. Mm. The Offspring Smash came out in America the day that Kurt Cobain's body was found. You read stuff like that, and I understand completely why it's so tempting to mythologize this stuff and tie it in a neat bow and say that's the precise moment it happened. But that's obviously oversimplifying things. But, you know, I do understand why people do that. And I do I do I do get it. When when mm. you have when you have so many little coincidences like that, uh I do understand it. But I also think it's a very simplified version of the truth but you know yeah i'm trying to keep my powder dry a little bit here because so much of this touches on down on the upside and okay. where the media went to with that particularly where the media and where you know that that reaction to everything happened um okay well, during the kind of down on the upside cycle but i definitely agree and i think you yeah. know mark yarm's book that i the, the bible if you like grunge everybody loves our town Everybody says it was Andy Wood and it wasn't Kurt was the moment where yes. they they went, this is not fun anymore. Yeah. You know, this is not something that we want to be. A grunge probably wasn't even a word then. You know, it probably wasn't even a word. And they all found ways to to escape it. And Soundgarden's way to escape it was to go on tour with Guns N' Roses. Mm. And to become a, an absolutely monolithically huge rock band, which mm. is, I think, is something which, you know, they they maybe, well, I think it, we will we will look at the fact that they maybe shouldn't have maybe regretted doing that a little bit, mm. and that mm. kind of destroyed mm. them. Um, it wasn't grunge dying or pop punk that destroyed destroyed Soundgarden. No, it was Soundgarden. Mm. Maybe mm -hmm. not not traveling down the road that was best for them. I mean, we've got amazing records because of it. Mm. But at, you know, at, at, you know, I think we said it a bunch of times before. At what kind of cost do you get those records? At what kind of cost of we've got in utero and never mind? But what is the human cost of us getting those things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it sounds like we're going to go into that a little bit more on your part yeah. so, so let's um let's just draw a line under that for the moment and we can discuss that later um but the song itself like suicide thoughts it's i mean great. it's an amazing song like the the opening picked guitar again something a little bit different mm. the drum tattoo the, the rhythmically is so fucking excellent um again cornell signing off with something subtle and sublime just to fucking incredible like it's an amazing way to end the record mm. with the longest song and i would say oh it almost feels like the most personal song maybe, on the record maybe. i mean maybe, maybe maybe because there's so much of this that you can now look you, again i mean maybe i'm doing it you can look back on so mm. much of this album mm. and go oh yeah there's that yeah and there's that yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. this um so maybe i shouldn't say that but you know it does feel like there's a there's a few times on this record where Chris Cornell, the rock god that he had become, mm. you know, this unbelievable singer, this front man to playing into stadiums, like an unfathomably attractive man, 
mm-hmm. is suddenly you see the the insecurities in him mm-hmm. they are trying to live like suicide being the two kind of main ones i would say yeah so yeah it's quite a good way to end the record i think yeah yeah uh, i echo all of those statements i would say the kim thal solo is probably it's up there with his best might mm-hmm. be his best the way that it explodes uh it's just fucking incredible uh the dyna- dynamics on this song are amazing the way that it builds subtly and slowly it's it's just a wonderful wonderful way to end it obviously it's taken on more resonance in the last few years but i think again even before that this was still an astonishing song an astonishing astonishing way to end the album i think yeah so Super, Super Unknown was a critical and commercial success and became the band's breakthrough album. It debuted at number one on the Billboard 200, selling 310,000 copies in its opening week. Not bad. Um, especially when you compare it to Dookie selling 9,000 in its opening week. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. The album also topped the Australian, Canadian and New Zealand charts. Five singles were released from the album. The Day I Tried to Live, My Wave, Fell on Black Days, Spoon Man and Black Hole Sun. The latter two of which won Grammy Awards and helped Soundgarden reach mainstream popularity. In 1995, the album was nominated for the Grammy Award for Best Rock Album. Uh, didn't win, though. Rubbish. The album has been certified five times platinum by the RIAA in the United States, has sold nine million copies worldwide, and remains Soundgarden's most successful album. In April 2019, Super Unknown was ranked at number nine on Rolling Stone's 50 Greatest Grunge Albums list. Really? Only number nine? Only only number nine, yes. Uh, So the critical reception, Super Unknown, received universal acclaim from music critics. In a 5K review, Kerrang! said, uh, Kerrang! recognised, sorry, Super Unknown as the work of a band whose creative powers are operating at their fullest. Correct. Q said, Soundgarden dealt in unreconstructed heavy rock, a heavy guitar sound, depth charge drumming, yet Super Unknown also includes more measured moments. Rolling Stone magazine's J.D. Considine was impressed by the record's range and despite criticising Black Hole Sun and Half, criticising Black Hole Sun, what? He said, at its best, Super Unknown offers a more harrowing depiction of alienation and despair than anything on In Utero. Um, I will continue with that, but thoughts on that very briefly, Steve? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm going to say, say no. Uh, yeah, I... Uh, I think they're close, but yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. We'll go into that another day, mm, I think. Okay. Uh, John Perez of the New York Times credited the band with trying to transcend conventional heavy metal. Uh, not that they were ever uh, <sighs> a band, but there you go. Super Unknown actually tries to broaden its audience by breaking heavy metal genre barriers that Soundgarden used to accept. Mm, I mean... They're not a metal band, but fine. In Entertainment Weekly, David Brown wrote, Soundgarden is pumped and primed on Super Unknown and they deliver the goods. He praised it it as a hard rock milestone, a boiling vat of volcanic power, record-making smarts and 90s anime and anxiety that sets a new standard for anything called metal. Oh, oh, I hate people calling them metal. Anne Powers from Blender said that guitarist Thal helps create the stoner rock template and that it stands as Soundgarden's masterpiece. Village voice critic Robert Christogu, who had mocked Soundgarden's conceptual pretentiousness for years, still felt their foredooming pessimistic lyrics lacked much substance. 
<laughs> but said they had improved composing, arranging and producing on an album that was easily the best, most galvanizing, kinetic, sensational, catchy Zep rip in history. I can't even imagine what he thinks of Greta Van Fleet. Um, in a retrospective review, all music editor Steve Huey wrote, it's obvious that Super Unknown was consciously styled as a masterwork and it fulfills every ambition. We were listening to Nirvana and Pearl Jam just like everyone else, remarked Def Leppard's Vivian Campbell, and especially to Soundgarden, the Super Unknown record. That was the record that we referenced in terms of the sonics and the mood of it when making slang. Oh God, oh, that's I mean, the that's... one thing that we shouldn't be like, we can't blame this. This record won't be allowed to be a classic album if we're blaming it for slang, for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should cut that out. I don't know. Who knows? Anyway. Um, no, Vivian... it's definitely interesting. It is it's interesting. Definitely interesting. It's definitely interesting that Def Leppard thought that slang sounded like Soundgarden. I, mean... <laughs> I have not heard that record, but I do know that it's not a well-respected Def Leppard no. record. Um, speaking of uh, other bands' thoughts on uh, this record, Dave Grohl had something to say on this record, and quite pertinent, I thought. I thought it was really summed up really, really nicely, actually. Um, Grohl recalls hearing Super Unknown early when producer slash engineer Adam Casper brought the disc to Nirvana's final recording session before it was released and offered and offered the band to listen to it. And Grohl said he played Black Hole Sun and I remember thinking, holy shit, this is going to be huge. Because to me, it was that perfect meeting of the Beatles and Black Sabbath, which is what I think we put in our Nirvana bio. But I don't think that had ever successfully been paired until that record and in particular that song. It was so much more melodically sophisticated than anything any of the bands in Seattle were doing. It was a big deal. To me, they had that punk rock underground do-it-yourself ethic, but they were playing really interesting rock music. Soundgarden were the first band to get out, the first band to sort of break, the first band to do the major label thing in the underground scene. It only made sense that they were the first band to write a song like Black Hole Sun. And that record really just raised the bar for everyone. Nobody had a voice like Chris. Nobody played drums like Matt. They were an incredible band. 20 years later, that's one of those records I honestly feel like your kid or your kids' kids will discover and say, wow, Dad, did you know about that band Soundgarden? 25 years from now. I completely agree, Dave Grohl. Uh, he might not be any good at writing music anymore, but he can <laughs> sure sum up why people like stuff better than us journalists can sometimes, I think. Um, Kinthal told Kerrang in 2012 that Soundgarden, uh, sorry, Super Unknown was the pinnacle of our career, but we had difficult things going on. The death of Kurt was heavy and upsetting for us. Some of us had relationships falter and we lost some other friends too. We were dealing with personal loss while trying to grasp a professional success. I don't know if we ever fully appreciated it. Uh, I can imagine with everything that was going on at the time, it would have been difficult to do so. Yep. Reflecting with the Rolling Stone in 2012, Chris, who had always been so allergic to nostalgia, reappraised their masterpiece, saying there's an eeriness in there, a kind of unresolvable sadness or indescribable longing that I've never really tried to isolate and define and fully understand. But it's always there. It's like a haunted thing. I agree. I think. Yeah, me too. I think the fact that it's difficult to I fully identify and fully grasp it is one of the genius things about this record. Mm. Um, I said at the beginning of this podcast two and a quarter hours ago that Super Unknown is probably my favorite album. Well, it is my favorite album to come out of the grunge scene, and the reason for that is it's a complete oddity and an outlier 
doesn't sound like any other album that came from that time or that scene. It is one of the examples that I use when I argue that grunge isn't a genre, <laughs> because <laughs> because this is you know this is seen as one of the 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 the, the greatest grunge albums, number nine in Rolling Stones' uh, fifty greatest albums of all time. Both of us think it should be higher, um, yeah. and yet it doesn't sound like anything else on that list. I guarantee it. Um, it's their most commercially successful album, and usually underground bands need to dumb certain elements of their sound down in order to, to achieve a big commercial hit black album is a classic example and if you look at it on a surface level yes the sonic heaviness of the album is dialed back from the from the likes of bad motor finger and loud love uh, even if the likes of limo wreck or mailman or fourth of july could give any of the material on those albums a run for their money in the heaviness department but the songwriting on Super Unknown is some of the most complex and frankly oddest of the entire band's career. Fresh Tendrils does not sound like a song that belongs on a 9 million selling album. The, the album went in at number one on the Billboard 200. And how many number one albums have a song about a psychotic mailman who feels so subjugated by the powers he, that be plans to kill them and everyone else around him? You know, that is not number one record material it's dark stuff it's really bleak and Soundgarden didn't shy away from any of that at all it's a challenging record the songs are seemingly unconnected and yet the songwriting is so strong and Chris Cornell provides such amazing connective tissue with them that it all feels really cohesive and Super Unknown should be the blueprint for every single band who wants to write a diverse record it should be the point where you start. It's over 70 minutes, this album, and on paper, it should get boring. There should be a point where you go, oh, this is a, oh, a bit bored now. It never does. Not once. E even half, I'm going to say. I don't think half is boring. You know, mm. you might not need it on the record, but I don't think it's boring. No, no, it's not boring. No, yeah, definitely not. And, and the diversity and the strength of its songs means that it never gets dull. Not once. Um, Dave Grohl's right. Super Unknown is the perfect blend of Black Sabbath and the Beatles, but it's also so much more than that. Black Sabbath meets the Beatles is just the starting point for this record. Think of that. Black Sabbath meets the Beatles. That is the starting point. And you know what? Here's a hard take. I don't like any singular Black Sabbath album or any singular Beatles album as much as I like Super Unknown. I probably don't either. There we go. My yeah. favourite Black Sabbath album is Masters of Reality and my favourite Beatles album is Abbey Road. Both are exceptional, but neither take me on the journey that Super Unknown does. Mm, I'd agree with that. Um, I will, um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go to you and then we'll give Chris Cornell the last word. So, so um, okay. that's my wrap up. What's your wrap up yeah. for this record, Steve? So, we got our answer why why is super unknown a classic that is a mad thing isn't it hmm. why is super unknown a classic it almost seems like a stupid question it almost <laughs> seems like a thick like a thick it sounds like something a child would ask you like at this point in my life it feels like something that a kind of a naive child taking their first steps in the world would ask why why does it rain why you know is, I mean? why like, is water wet yes it's, it's one of, of those thing, yeah. it's sim i mean really really simply it is the quality of the musicianship and the songs that are pepper this record 
from the start to the end. It is legitimately pretty much perfect songwriting, composition, the performances, the 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 chemistry, the production quality. And if this is, and I think you've argued it quite well when we spoke about like suicide, I was going to say because we go into down in the upside in a minute, and this is the swan song to to grunge in a lot of ways. Mm. You know, it's it's not Kurt's death or the Nirvana MTV unplugged on session. I think it is the end of like suicide. It does feel like you say the closing of a chapter and. The reason why I feel like Super Unknown closes the chapter on grunge even more than Nirvana did is because when this thing started, whatever you want to call it, this scene in Seattle, it started as a punk rock movement. But Soundgarden made it too big to tame. Soundgarden made it too wide, too cinematic, too... Expansive. Expansive, all of those things. If this is the end of grunge then that is an unbelievable way to go out Hmm. if this even is grunge. I mean, Soundgarden Hmm. were a punk band. I mean, even if they weren't, a, you know, they were an underground band, even if they weren't a punk band. And then to have those kind of Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath comparisons follow them around the place, you know, they were there. But I think, I mean, I wasn't quite there, but I don't think anyone at all could ever have imagined that that scene would come together in the way that it does on this album. I don't think anyone could have ever predicted that it could be, you know, this good. There were tips and there were hints that, you know, this music was dark and aggressive and angry and depressing and dour and somber and uncompromising. And you could get that and you could get it into the mainstream. But to get it as big and as bold and as perfect and and just as in, like, in love with the trappings of the glory years of rock and roll you know this album is is sabbath and it is zeppelin and it is the beatles and it is aerosmith and it is leonard skinnard and it is the stooges and it is the mc5 this is rock and roll excess and bombast in the most dour almost rebellious clothes that it could be in Mm. soundgarden took all of the bloated excesses of 70s rock and repackaged it for for an entirely new generation in a completely unique way um and i think it's the album that i think it's kind of the album that killed grunge because it left an impossible specter to try and vault over i don't think any other band could could be a grunge band and could think that they're going to be capable of doing this mm. and like whether you like it or not and we're going to discuss that they didn't you're rock stars now lads you can't make an album like this and not be rock stars because it's just too fucking perfect yeah i agree i agree completely and utterly um how do you follow up an album like Super Unknown? Well, we're going to go into that in a bit, aren't we? But mm-hmm. um, but let's leave the last word with Chris Cornell. Um, when he was looking back on Super Unknown for the 20th anniversary, Chris Cornell said, It was a time filled with a tremendous amount of responsibility and pressure to prove who we were. We wanted to show that we stood alone and outside of what was becoming a convenient geographic group that we were inside. I never felt bad about being lumped in with other Seattle bands. I thought it was great. 
But I also felt like all of us were going to have to prove that we could also exist with autonomy and we deserve to be playing on an international stage and we deserve to have videos on TV and songs on the radio. And it wasn't just a fad like the British invasion or a New York noise scene. Super Unknown was that for me. It was showing what we were, not just a flavour of the month. We had the responsibility to seize the moment, and I think we really did. And that's pretty perfect in terms of mm. summing up why this record is fucking great. In terms of a band having a moment and seizing it, I struggle to think of a better example. It's, um, I mean, I'm sure there's a few, but it's, uh, it's a pretty, pretty astonishing example of them seeing this thing happen and becoming successful off the back of it, but on their own terms mm, and without sure. compromising their, their music. And it's not the only good music that they would put out either, because if you go over now to patreon.com forward slash right act podcast, you can sign up for our five pound a month tier. We're going to do down on the upside, which is very much the flip in most ways to this record, other than the fact that it's still fucking great. Mm, mm. Yes, it is. So thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And um, if you have a grungy friend, uh, do tell him about this podcast and let him have a listen and see what he thinks anyway thanks very much guys we will see you over on the Patreon page bye bye <laughs>